With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia. A global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com School discipline is a tricky balance. Keep everyone safe and keep all but the most disruptive students in school. One tool in that effort is supposed to be a last resort, suspension. But at one elementary school in Dorchester, there's added pressure. Up Academy Holland is a turnaround school, meaning its test scores were so low the state took it over. Now, with a new private company in charge, the number of suspensions is unusually high. WBUR's Peter Ballinon-Rosen reports. For Malika Williams' son Malik, what would end in suspension could start small. One time in kindergarten, William says it started with laughter. He was in dramatic play, and a little girl whispered in his ear. And when she whispered in his ear, it kind of tickled, and he yelled out, Ah! So Malik's told to use his inside voice, but soon he laughs again loudly and yells. So he's scolded and sent to the dean's office. He gets in the dean's office. He's acting out because he doesn't even understand what he did wrong. He's scared. William says Malik has social-emotional delay so he'd start to lose control. If he can't regulate himself because he's upset that he had to go to Dean's office, so then you have this bursting out that he's doing, so now you're in there a little bit longer. When Malik's behavior escalates, it can get dangerous. Williams shared her son's suspension records. The records say often Malik would throw chairs, attack staff, and try to run out of school. The result? He was suspended 10 times in the first five months of school. The state says Up Academy Holland, a school of about 750 students, dealt out 325 suspensions last year. Massachusetts schools, on average, sent home about 1 in 33 students. Up Academy Holland sent home 1 in 11. Many students were suspended multiple times. This year's numbers aren't out yet, but a teacher concerned about discipline at the school sent WBUR this year's internal records. Those numbers are high, too. 
233 in and out of school suspensions by the end of January. 37 of those for students with disabilities too severe to place them in regular classrooms. Up Academy Holland principal Jabari Petty. Any removal from the school we take uh, incredibly serious, and before that can happen, uh, we have to go through a very complex process um, that is checked by uh, a receiver before any exclusion is uh, authorized. State Education Commissioner Mitchell Chester says the school must improve. There's no rationale for uh, suspending young people at that kind of rate. That's just unacceptable. Malika Williams and some other parents say often when students are sent home, it's not even recorded as a suspension. It's just a call or a text. Come get your kid. And Williams says it would happen almost every day. Sometimes, she says, school staff would threaten to call EMS if she didn't come. It got so bad that if my cell phone would ring, my nerves became shot. I mean, really shot. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade, in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of racism, white supremacy. Today's date, Monday, April 25th, 2016. So I have been told uh, we should be here tomorrow, same broadcast time, uh, and we might even be touching on some of the same topics. Uh, Dr. Mazama, she is a black scholar in Pennsylvania. Uh, She also does a lot of work around white supremacy, white terrorism uh, in the public school systems in this part of the world, and also suggestions on things black parents can and should do uh, to protect and properly educate black children, uh, but she should be here with us tomorrow, so you can tune in uh, 24 hours. Uh, We'll be having, hopefully, more constructive information on things we can and should be doing uh, to combat the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, Our guest for today's broadcast uh, has been with us. Uh, This actually would be his 10th time visiting the program. Uh, I know tons of folks out there are uh, huge fans uh, of his work, always are super excited uh, to have him on the broadcast with us, and we're really looking forward uh, to getting him back since we have been talking uh, a bit more this month uh, about just trying to get tips and suggestions uh, for black parents. Uh, folks can certainly uh, check out his book, uh, which offers a lot, of, a lot of information on this very subject matter, uh, Psychoacademic Holocaust uh, should be linked in the description. Uh, folks would like to get a copy. I know one of our listeners, when they heard uh, he was going to be visiting with us again today, uh, said she was studying uh, his material right now uh, in an effort to advocate uh, for one of the children in her family. Uh, as I said, always a pleasure to have him on the program. He is a nationally recognized school psychiatrist. I think many people all around the world uh, have seen not only his lectures, but have seen uh, some of his phenomenal insight in the documentary series Hidden Colors. Uh, Always a privilege to have him on the broadcast. Joining us once again live from Pennsylvania, the legendary Dr. Umar Abdullah Johnson. Dr. Umar, are you with us, sir? Might have hit the incorrect line. Make sure. Let's see. Uh, might have one, actually several callers dialing in from the Pennsylvania area. Got me mixed up with my line there. Dr. Umar, do we have you, sir? Yes, sir, Brother Gus. Uh, good evening to you, and thanks for having me on the broadcast. 
pleasure to have you back with us, sir. As I said, always a privilege, and we're super appreciative of your time. Uh, for our listeners, I know you uh, keep such a full calendar. Uh, if you could please update us on where you are going to be visiting so folks can kind of put on their calendar, keep in mind where you're going to be at, if they can come see you live in person. Uh, yes, sir. To begin with, I will be kicking off a return to the lecture circuit after a two-month break with Brother David Banner. We will be in Birmingham, Alabama this coming Saturday at the Carver Theater, 6 p.m. program. The event is completely sold out. That is Saturday, April the 30th. On Sunday, the very next day, Sunday, May the 1st, I will be the keynote speaker for the Ujima Shule's 48th Anniversary Gala. The Ujima Shule is the oldest continuously operating independent African school in the United States. It is run by Baba Kasinsika Zulu, and he is a good friend of mine, strong elder, been educating our children uh, longer than I've been alive, because I'm only 41, and the school will be celebrating its 47th or 48th year. That will be at Howard University, Blackburn Center. It is a 12 to 5 program. If any of you have seen the flyer, the flyer says, uh, two to seven, but it's going to be 12 to five. Uh, the time has been reduced because Howard University, I believe, has another affair after that. If you need the link to buy tickets, you can text me for that, or you can call the number or use the email that is on the flyer. But please, please, please come out and support our oldest independent African school, Howard University Blackburn Center, Sunday, May 1st. And then I will be giving my first lecture in my hometown, first major lecture in over 10 years. I will be in Philadelphia, Saturday, May the 7th, 750 South Broad Street, Tinley Temple. That is a 3 to 6 program in Philadelphia, Saturday, May the 7th. And then I will be in Oakland, California. First visit in three years. I will be in Berkeley at the Black Repertoire Theater on Thursday, May the 12th, 6 to 9 program. And then I will move on to Memphis, Tennessee, Saturday, May the 14th. We will be at the New Chicago Community Development Center. I believe that is a 47 program. From there, we move on to Greenville, Mississippi for the first time. Excuse me, Greenville, South Carolina. My apologies. Greenville, South Carolina on Thursday. May the 19th, 91st anniversary of El Hajj Malik El Shabazz, Malcolm X, and my lecture will focus around Malcolm within the context of that material that I plan to cover that night. That's Thursday, May 19th, Greenville, South Carolina. And here we move on to a city that has been critical and prominent in Dr. Umar's rise within the conscious community, and that is Brooklyn, New York City. I will be in Brooklyn, New York City on Sunday, May the 22nd, at the uh, Philadelphia Universal Church of Brotherhood. That is 530 Eastern Parkway, 530 Eastern Parkway in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, on Sunday, May the 22nd. And I believe that is also a 3 to 6 program with the doors opening up at 1 o'clock. And then we move on to Baltimore, Maryland. I'm having a three-day parent conference in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm inviting everyone listening on this show. If you are not an intellectual masturbator and are serious about organizing to bring change in our community, join me 
in Baltimore, May 27th, 28th, and 29th for the National Independent Black Parent Association New Chapter Conference. I repeat, National Independent Black Parent Association New Chapter Conference. This is the organization that I've been talking about for over three years where we are about to launch it into existence. If you want to start a chapter, you must get the training. Saturday will be, will be the main day. If you can't be there Friday and Sunday, Saturday will be the main day. We're going to kick everything off Friday night. You're going to go to the Great Blacks and Wax Museum, one of my favorite museums in the entire world, and you will be led on a tour through the Great Blacks and Wax Museum by Dr. Umar Johnson himself. It's going to be a powerful weekend of meeting, sharing, learning, training, and organizing. If you're serious, you will be there. If not, you are not. And we will close out the parent conference that night with a community power lecture. Baltimore, Maryland, Sunday, May the 29th, 6 to 9, Dr. Umar Johnson will deal with the illusion of inclusion, Trump, Hillary, and the falsification of African inclusion. From there, we go to Savannah, Georgia, Thursday, June the 2nd. I will be making my debut in Savannah, Georgia. That is also a 6 p.m to 9 p.m. program. I have several graduations lined up, and then we have the Black Boy College Tour. Excuse me. Let me rephrase. It is no longer the Black Boy College Tour. It is the Black Boy and Girl College Tour. As of yesterday, I opened it up to our young sisters as well, 11 to 17 years old brothers and sisters. The tour will begin in Newark, New Jersey. June 30th, children must report by 9 p.m. on June the 30th, and then we go to the world-famous Apollo Theater. We go to the Audubon Ballroom where Brother Malcolm was assassinated, which is now the Malcolm and Betty Shabazz Center. We go to Angels Under Tuskegee, an off-Broadway play in Manhattan that our sons and daughters will see, which chronicles the life and struggle of the Tuskegee Airmen. I've seen the play. I love the play, and that's why we've taken our children to Broadway. And then it's off to Auburn, New York, to visit the home and the grave and the museum of Queen Mother Harriet Tubman, the queen of black revolution. And then we will go to the gravesite of none other than my four times great-grand-cousin and uncle, Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey in Rochester, New York. Then we go down to Pennsylvania, Cheney University, Lincoln University, our two oldest HBCUs, and then we will go to Dr. Umar's alma mater, Millersville University. From there, we will take the young men and women to Dorney Park, and then there will be an all-day conference at the hotel. We will cover such things as what to do when stopped by the police, understanding white supremacy, understanding African history and culture, why it is important to do well in school, why it is important for black women to respect black men, why it is equally important for black men to respect black women, how to start your own business, Understanding African spirituality, Pan-Africanism and Garveyism, and the list goes on. From there, we go to Delaware State University, the University of Maryland Eastern Shore, Eastern Shore, excuse me, Coppin State University, Morgan State University, Bowie State University, Howard University, the Frederick Douglass Home, the Frederick Douglass Museum, the Reginald F. Lewis Museum, the Baltimore Aquarium. Great Adventures, To the Beach, Paintball, Miniature Golf, To the Movies, Hampton University, 
Virginia State University, Virginia Union University, Norfolk State University, and we end it all off. We started with the Queen of Black Revolution. We're going to end it off with the King of Black Revolution, none other than Reverend Nathaniel Turner. We're going to go to the Nat Turner Reserve in Drewryville, Virginia, formerly known as Jerusalem, Virginia, where on my birthday, August the 21st, Prophet Nat Turner led a war against white supremacy, killing everything white he can find. 14 days and 14 nights, your sons and daughters with the Prince of Pan-Africanism and my male and female chaperones. The tour is $2,000 for parents. It's actually $4,000 per child, but I'm subsidizing the remainder of the tour with monies raised at my lectures. So parents are only paying half of what it costs to operate this tour. If you want to get, if you want to register your child, it's only a $500 deposit right now. The other $1,500 is not due until June 6th. If you have extenuating circumstances, you can extend your payment deadline all the way up until departure, but it must be paid in full by the day we leave because Dr. Umar is already taking care of so much of the tour out of his own pocket because this is something very important for our, for our children. If you want tickets to any of my lectures, if you need to register your child for the parent tour, if you need to register yourself for the Black Parent Conference in Baltimore, please go to Prince of Pan-Africanism. Dot eventbrite.com. That is Prince of Pan Africanism. Eventbrite.com, and we spell Africa with a K. Last but not least, Brother Gus, we will be taking our group tour to Africa. It looks like we're going to be going to Senegal in South Africa. Senegal in South Africa. The dates appear to look like they're going to be July the 26th to August the 9th. 14 days and 14 nights. You will go to the Gori Island one of the largest and major slave deportation sites for our ancestors. It was at Gori Island where Dr. Umar experienced a spiritual epiphany that put me on the road to studying African spirituality. I can't wait to go back and pay homage to the ancestors at Gori Island. You will go to the Pink Lake. You will also go to the National Museum of Senegal. You will get some of that great Senegalese food. You will get an opportunity to get uh, Senegalese clothing made for yourself. There will be tours of Senegal. We will go to some of the neighboring cities and towns. We will go to the villages of Senegal, the markets of Senegal, and then we go to South Africa and visit the grave site of Nelson Mandela, Steve Biko, King Shaka of the Zulus. You will go to Nelson and Winnie's home. We're trying to add Steve Biko's museum and gravesite to the tour. You will go through Johannesburg. You will go to Durban. There will be an option to go to Cape Town and visit Robben Island where Mandela and others were incarcerated for more than 27 years. So this is Dr. Umar Johnson. That's what I got going on. It ain't all about talk. It ain't all about the lectures. That's why we're doing the college tour. That's why we have the parent conference. And that's why we're doing the Africa trip. Prince of Pan-Africanism, eventbrite.com. And lastly, Brother Gus, every Tuesday morning, every Tuesday morning, that means tomorrow because tomorrow is Tuesday. From 6 a.m. until 8 p.m., Dr. Umar Johnson hosts a free, let me say it again, free, let me say it again, I'm not a hotel hustler, free black parent teleconference. Any black parent in the world, because I am a Pan-Africanist, any black parent in the world can call in tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and get any question answered for free about their son or daughter as it relates to education or mental health. That's tomorrow, 6 to 8. No excuses for being ignorant 
about what's being done to your child when you can get expert advice for free from the prince of Pan-Africanism. Outstanding. What uh, What's the best address uh, you would direct people to if they want to check out, get any of the dates, get in, information, what have you, for all these uh, upcoming outstanding events that you have going? Uh, the best place right now, because my website is being revamped, the dates are not up on the website, the best place is to go to my Eventbrite page, okay. princeofpanafricanism.eventbrite.com. All of the events that are listed there, they can buy their tickets right there on the spot. If they want to be a vendor, they can contact the host right there on that page. The Eventbrite page is the best place right now, princeofpanafricanism.eventbrite.com. Also, if they are linked into social network, Twitter and Instagram, they can connect with me at Dr. Umar Johnson. One word, D-R-U-M-A-R-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. Flyers for all the events are posted on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. For Twitter and Instagram, you connect with me at Dr. Umar Johnson. On Facebook, you connect with me at Dr. Umar Ifatunde. I use my Yoruba last name, which is I-F-A. T-U-N-D-E. I repeat, I-F-A-T-U-N-D-E. Dr. Umar Ifatunde, Facebook only. Please be careful. There's a lot of fraudulent Dr. Umar pages out there, some operated by the CIA, some operated by my haters. If it's not Dr. Umar Ifatunde, then you are on the wrong page. You can email me, drumarjohnson at yahoo.com, D-R-U-M-A-R Johnson at Yahoo. You can also email me through the website, drumarjohnson.com. And if you need to text me, you can do that as well. I do not answer the phone, but I do text. And that is area code 215-989-9858, 215-989-9858 for flyers and quick questions. If it's not a quick question, do not text me a long letter. Email the letter to drumarjohnson at yahoo.com. Outstanding for folks who follow on the Facebook page. I just uh, linked the event bright page for Dr. Umar. That way you can see all the events and what have you that he just laid out. See what he has happening uh, going on for 2016. Go out support outstanding information uh, to kind of get started. I know we're going to try and make time for as many questions from listeners as possible um, to get started. You haven't uh, been back with us since uh, the passing of Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. I know you shared the stage with her many times, and both of you all were in the Hidden Colors documentary series. Just uh, your thoughts uh, on the passing of someone who also devoted decades of her life, a half century, to fighting against racism, white supremacy. For me, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing's standing contribution in testament of work lies not in the fact that she spoke up against white supremacy, not in the fact that she was a psychiatrist or a lecturer, but it lies in the fact that this black woman who had a nappy head her entire life went to medical school at a time when it was almost impossible for an African to get a medical degree. And let me underscore that. Dr. Frances Cress Wilson had a medical degree. She was not a Ph.D. like Dr. Umar. She was not a J.D. She was not a Psy.D. She was not an E.D.D. She was a M.D., a medical doctor. She could have kicked back and simply got rich prescribing Ritalin, Adderall, Stratera, Cycler, Prozac, Paxil, and all the dangerous drugs. 
that I talk about. She didn't do that. Not only did she have to struggle through school and deal with all the racism that I'm sure she had to encounter because all of us had to do so working on our doctorate degrees. Not only did she go through all of that, she had the commitment, the commitment to her race to come out of medical school and use that education to educate us all about the dangers of racism and white supremacy. How often do you see a medical doctor dedicate their life to fighting white supremacy? And the fact that she was a black woman, a black woman who sacrificed her medical career for the greater good of black people, for me, there's no greater sacrifice than that. And the ultimate thing that I really respect about Dr. Wells, just as I respect about Dr. Yusuf Benyakinen, who we lost just a few weeks before her, and what I also respect about Dr. Delbert Blair, whose funeral, I, oh, excuse me, memorial service I attended in Chicago a few weeks ago. We lost three great ancestors. But what I respect about her, as the other two Babas, is she never changed. Dr. Frances Cress Wilson was consistent her entire life. I always teach that you must evaluate all so-called freedom fighters on the five continuums of consistency, commitment, courage, creativity, and I'm forgetting my last seat, but Dr. Wilson was high on all of those. How often we look around the conscious community and see some of these con artists who stand for one thing this year and totally change it next year to get paid and totally change it another year to get paid and then come back to black consciousness and go off to this and go off to that. Dr. Francis Press Wilson was consistent. Her entire life, she never sold out and never capitulated to the power structure. And for that reason, she will always, always be a hero of mine, a shero of mine. And for the fact that both of us were mental health experts, myself being a psychologist, she being a psychiatrist, I can respect her even more, Brother Gus, because there's so much money. There's so much money that she gave up not going along with the power structures agenda for the psychiatry of black folks. So much money she gave up. That woman could have been a multi-millionaire prescribing them drugs as opposed to exposing the system of racism and white supremacy. So she is an example to me, along with Dr. Amos Wilson, along with Dr. Bobby Wright, along with Franz Fanon, along with many of the psychologists who are still walking today, Dr. Naeem Akbar. They are examples to me and what I need to continue doing. Dr. Francis Cress Wilson is our Harriet Tubman of the 21st century. Wow. Ashe. I don't think they'll be putting her on any U.S. currency anytime soon, but <laughs> outstanding. And that just that word consistent, I think that is certainly one thing that I have highlighted on this program before. I mean, wow, you talk about a model of consistency for decades, not a few weeks or a few months or while this is in vogue and moving on to something else to be consistent for decades, addressing the number one problem on this planet facing black people. I mean, model, outstanding illustration of black self-respect and consistency. I In my view, that is one of the highest qualities you can uh, commit to just being consistent, particularly if you are consistent about something constructive and as important as combating racism, white supremacy. Um, Before uh, I I definitely want, as I said, I want to try to get as many uh, of your thoughts, suggestions on 
things black parents can be doing to help their children. Uh, I did want to ask, since we had you here, and it is a current event, I know a lot of people are talking about this as well, uh, with the passing of uh, musical prodigy Prince, uh, the thing that I, at least one thing that has stood out with all of this, uh, I have not seen any reports about a cause of death as of yet, uh, and I've seen a lot of reports suggesting uh, oh, man, he was really this, you know, ferocious drug addict and having people coming out and alleging that he would spend thousands of dollars at a time on pain medication. And maybe he overdosed uh, on Percocet, uh, in my view, just uh, a real effort to kind of smear uh, his legacy just moments literally after his transition. Uh, do you have any thoughts on, on what you've seen the past few days since his transition? Oh, without question. The second I heard it, I knew it was a murder. I deduced and concluded that it was a murder because I understood Prince's timeline in immediate past history. In 2014, Warner Brothers asked for a sit-down with Prince to negotiate some future music business together. We all know Prince had went independent several years ago after tattooing Slave on his face after realizing the type of contract that he was in. He embarrassed the music company so bad that they let him out of the contract, and he started producing his own music from that point forward, but he did not own the masters from his past classical music. And so they called him back to the table and made him the offer of giving him back his masters to all of his past music, Purple Rain and everything else. However, as they always do, Machiavellian style, white supremacy, they asked to be given permission to remaster the Purple Rain album in time for its 20 or 30th year anniversary. So Prince came back and got his masters, but at the same time, as the white man always does, he gives you something only to take something bigger. And I believe Warner Brothers was never uh, sincere about giving Prince his music. They only used that because they knew that was the only thing that would bring him back to the table was the carrot stick of potentially owning the rights to his historical, his historical classic or his, his past music. But when Prince signed to give them the rights to remaster Purple Rain, he let them back in his life. He let them back in his life. In other words, the slave uh, shackles that he took off a few years ago, he kind of put them back on again. It was a setup from the gate. Get him back to the table. Bring him in close enough for us to kill him so we can take back all the music. And on top of that, Gus, I'm not so sure that this whole thing was really about remastering the Purple Rain uh, anniversary album. And I'm not so sure that it was all about uh, uh, getting back the masters from Prince's earlier music. I really believe that what Warner Brothers wanted through this murder was to gain control over Prince's unreleased material, just like Interscope wanted to gain uh, control over Tupac's unreleased material. Could you imagine how much money they're going to make off of releasing new Prince songs? You see, and so this whole thing was about getting the new unreleased music. They know Prince would never give them a part of that. Prince would never cut them in on his unreleased music, so they killed him. And so now they're going to earn, own that Purple Rain Classic album. They're going to probably buy back from his family if they don't downright own of the masters that they allegedly gave him back. And they're definitely going to steal, uh, intimidate, okay, or simply buy from his estate 
all of that unreleased music. And for anybody who thinks that this is a far-fetched, it was just announced a few weeks ago that Sony Records, who killed Michael Jackson, Sony Records just bought from Michael Jackson's estate the Beatles catalog. The same Beatles catalog that was the sole reason for Michael's murder in the first place is now back safely in the hands of Sony. I promise you, Brother Gus, within five years, if that long, Warner Brothers will own, own, earn, excuse me, own Purple Rain, own all the past masters that they allegedly gave back to Prince, and I'm willing to bet that the family is going to sell them or they're going to take or steal all the unreleased music. Prince was murdered by the music industry, as was Sam Cooke, as was Jimi Hendrix, as was Tupac, as was Michael Jackson. And what do all of these artists have in common? What does Prince, Sam Cooke, Michael Jackson, Tupac, and Jimi Hendrix all have in common? They either owned their music outright, owned music of other popular historic musicians, or was planning on taking control over their music. So you mean to tell me it's just a coincidence that every major black artist that seeks to control their own music ends up dead from a so-called overdose. First they said he had the flu. Now it's an overdose. How the hell you confuse a flu with a drug overdose? First of all, Prince was riding his bike outside days before he died. Who do you know rides a bike in cold-ass Minnesota with the damn flu? It doesn't even make any sense. The man was a vegetarian, perfect health, perfect health. He could have afforded any quality of medical care he needed, but yet he died of the flu. When the last time you heard of a multimillionaire dying from the flu? Negro, please. He was murdered by the music industry. Warner Brothers killed Prince. Sony Records killed Mike. Wow. Just in line uh, with what you have laid out for us, uh, number one, they have... Uh, posted many different reports, uh, very similar to when Michael Jackson died under suspicious circumstances. How many songs and albums have been sold since Prince passed? One million songs, 231,000 albums. Uh, that is a lot of coins, uh, a lot of Tubmans, I guess now they'll be saying, that somebody is making off the death of this artist. And uh, I thought this was a great point. I think Thomas in New York made when you were talking about Warner Brothers, when they call Prince back to the table, say, hey, let's squash all this. We're going to do right by you this time around. We'll give you back your masters so that you own your recordings. Uh, massive volume uh, of songs that was in two, April of 2014. It was almost two years to the day when he died. Two years to the day when he had this meeting uh, with Warner Brothers to renegotiate and get back control of his masters. I know John Patash, I know you've interviewed him as well. Uh, he was on our program just two weeks ago, earlier this month. And he talks about that in both of his books where he talks about Jimi Hendrix, Tupac Shakur, quite a few of the artists that you just mentioned who died under suspicious circumstances, uh, saying that any time that you have these uh, anniversary killings or when a black person, when they die, when it is the anniversary of a significant date, that is not something that is a coincidence. That is something that should be closely scrutinized, evaluated in context and really people processing. Now, why is it that this person would die 
one year to the day that they signed this agreement for their records. I think he also talked about with Huey P. Newton and Dr. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, people that were not musicians but were also black people fighting against racism, how they too frequently have died on important days or anniversaries when really significant things happen and how that can be a way that racist white supremacists send a message about what black people, non-white people, victims of racism, what we are not supposed to be doing, uh, just subtle way of communicating this could happen to you as well uh, if you venture off the path of what we think you ought to be doing. Uh, and also just throwing really quick as well, I think just as you've touched on all of the unreleased recordings, I think at least the reports that I've seen, uh, Prince Abhi had a huge studio uh, up in Minnesota. Uh, they've, I've seen reports where they said he had so much unreleased music that he could release uh, like an album a month for like decades because he had so much. Uh, he recorded all the time. I've just there have been so many people that knew him that have come out and said that he recorded music constantly. And there's so much material again white folks looking to make a lot of coin uh, off of a black genius after he's died, as you stated, as he has been killed uh, by the record industry. Um, unless you wanted to add anything, I was going to transition to the school topics. Anything you want to no, add? sir, I, I, I think you uh, hit it. But one thing I did want to say, I, did you have the Harriet Tubman $20 bill on the agenda for us to discuss tonight? Uh, I didn't, but certainly that's current. For I'm sure folks would love to hear your thoughts on that, please. Yes. Let me go right to that. White supremacy's number one weapon is confusion and the illusion of inclusion. I'm going to say that again. White supremacy's number one weapon against black folk, or should I say number one and number two weapons against black folk, is confusion and the illusion of inclusion. Let's deal with confusion. Confusion says that you always create a state of intellectual confusion amongst your victims. Because confused people do not act. Let me say that one more time. Confused people do not act. Let me say it one more time. When you are confused, you don't act. Let's say you go to the supermarket and you stop at the uh, salad dressing aisle, okay? Or you stop at the fruit aisle or you stop at the meat aisle or you stop at the snack aisle. It doesn't matter. And there's one salad dressing that you are interested in and then there's another. There's one snack you're interested in, and then there's another. You might want the chips, but you want the pretzel. You might like the American cheese, but the provolone got your attention as well. You might want the orange juice, but the apple juice looks just as appetizing to your palate. What do you do when you're not sure which way to go? You stop and ponder what to do. And you will stay there deciding between the two types of cheeses, the two types of salad dressings, the two types of snacks, the two types of fruit, until you make a decision. You might stand there for two minutes. You might stand there for ten minutes. You could end up standing there for two hours if you're very indecisive. And the, and the more expensive, the more costly the decision, the longer you will ponder it. So you might test drive one car, test drive another car, and you might tell the dealer that I haven't made up my mind. I need to go home and sleep on it. But I can't not do anything because right now I'm confused because I'm faced with two options and I don't know which one to take because you're telling me that this car is excellent, but you're also telling me, that this car is excellent, but I don't know what to do. Black people are receiving two messages that is creating confusion. They're hearing the message from you. They're hearing the message from me. The times are getting worse. You are in a perpetual state of white supremacy until you decide to destroy it. But then they also are hearing the message from the Obamaites, from Obama. They're hearing the message from Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders. They're hearing the message from the NAACP, the Urban League, and the black bourgeoisie, the coon Illuminati, that times are constantly getting better. So what do you do when you don't know what to do? You stand still. 
That's how white supremacy controls us, by constantly confusing us as to our reality. In the real world, you get treated like shit. But on TV, white people are always saving you. So that creates that confusion. You don't know whether to fight against white supremacy or love white supremacy because in real life, white supremacy is hurting you. But on TV, a white man always saves the day. So that's the confusion side. Now you have the illusion of inclusion. This is also related to the confusion. The illusion of inclusion says we're going to make black people look like they're a part of America. We're going to make black people look like we care. We're going to throw them some type of token to give them the illusion of inclusion, because after all, we know they hate themselves and love us to death, because after all, we have been killing, exterminating, mistreating, diseasing, raping, and doing everything we can to black people and their children for 500 years, and yet they still want to integrate with us. That Harriet Tubman, $20 bill, Gus, that is intended to sow confusion by way of the illusion of inclusion. In other words, under the Obama administration, we've seen what? Black boy after black boy get murdered. Sandra Bland murdered. Unemployment rate go out of control. Incarceration rate go out of control. Black high school dropout, the highest in 50 years. Black people are doing worse under Obama than they did under Bush or his father. Worse under Obama than under Bush or his father. What is the purpose of the Harriet Tubman $20 bill? Is this a coincidence? Absolutely not. That Harriet Tubman $20 bill is supposed to make up for. I'm going to say it again. That Harriet Tubman $20 bill is supposed to placate Negro. That's America's way of saying, we're sorry. We know we killed off your children. We know we incarcerating your men. We know we murdering your women. But we're going to put one of your most beloved ancestors on a $20 bill. Now, symbolism. White supremacy is all about symbolism. What is a symbol? It is any image that contains multiple meanings, not just the obvious meaning, but there's also some esoteric hidden meanings. On the surface, the Harry Tubman $20 bill is supposed to placate black culture and black progress on the surface. But you know what the esoteric meaning of the Harriet Tubman bill is? We taking you niggas back to slavery. We taking you niggas back to slavery. That's the esoteric meaning. Look at that. Look at the irony. Harriet Tubman was refused a pension. Harriet Tubman's slave master had a fifty thousand dollar bounty on her head. Harriet Tubman had to deal with racism after the Civil War. Look at all the hell Harriet Tubman had to go through. Look at all the times her life was threatened. And you mean to tell me the same government that sanctioned the hunt for Harriet Tubman? The same government that sanctioned the slavery that Harriet Tubman fought for is going to turn around and honor her a hundred and three years after her death? Really now? On the surface, this is the payback for the hell we caused. Esoteric meaning, we're taking you Negroes back to slavery. It is a setup for a setback. Please, brothers and sisters, don't fall for the Harriet Tubman twenty dollar bill context of white supremacy dr umar abdullah johnson uh speaking of setup uh i was really really excited uh knowing you were coming back on the program to get your perspective on this uh about the land and i'm in washington state remind folks uh the states that have legalized cannabis uh this is one uh, where i've been residing for a few years now uh, we've been talking about this issue. Uh, you have uh, laid out eloquently uh, your five stages of white supremacy. 
miseducation, uh, psychotropic medication, frustration, irritation. Oh, excuse me, I missed one. So it's miseducation, psychotropic medication, incarceration, frustration, hyphen, irritation, and then finally extermination. Uh, the legalization of cannabis, uh, I guess it could be stage two or three, depending on your perspective, psychotropic medication and or incarceration. I've heard a lot of people, prominent scholars, uh, even Bernie Sanders, presidential candidate, have said uh, the drug wars, racist. They had a great report that came out a few weeks ago laying out how uh, President Nixon said, hey, Let's just cut to the chase. The whole drug war, this is a way that we can lock up black people. If we can associate them with heroin and narcotics, it'll be real easy. Everybody will say, oh, yeah, these Negroes, they're, they're terrible. We got to get these savages uh, in cages. Uh, and that this has decimated black people for about a half century now. Uh, you talked about it, uh, mass incarceration of black people out of control. A lot of this around the quote-unquote drug war. There have been a lot of people, uh, Michelle Alexander, she wrote uh, The New Jim Grow. She has talked about this as well. A lot of people think if we legalize cannabis that this will work against racism. This will keep a lot of black people out of greater confinement and or will allow some, maybe many of them, to get out of greater confinement and go on and do great constructive things with their life. What is your perspective? Do you think this is something that's going to be helpful to black people? In Camden, New Jersey, a year or two ago, I was invited by the city government to a public health emergency meeting on the substance-induced, marijuana-induced psychosis, permanent psychosis, that many of our teenagers in Camden, New Jersey, were suffering from. In other words, what is going on in Camden and in many black cities across the country, they're selling sticks of marijuana pre-rolled and dipped in PCP and angel dust. However, many of the dealers, Gus, are not only using angel dust and PCP, but within the angel dust and the PCP, they are mixing a rat poison, they are mixing embalming fluid. They are mixing other type of industrial ingredients that were never intended for human consumption. These young people are smoking one stick of this pre-rolled marijuana dipped in wet, and they are having a psychotic episode, being rushed to the hospital with paranoid schizophrenia symptoms. But the problem, Gus, is they are never coming down off the high. One marijuana stick of weed is leading to a life of schizophrenia, paranoid delusions in our 14, 15, 16, 17-year-olds. So you ask me, what do I think about the legalization of marijuana? White supremacy again. Always put the iron fist in a velvet glove. The Harriet Tubman $20 bill, iron fist in a velvet glove. President Barack Obama's presidency, as we can all, all see in hindsight, iron fist in a velvet glove. And the legalization of marijuana, iron fist in a velvet glove. In other words, they're legalizing it so it can be used in conjunction with these toxic substances that is going to wreak more havoc and side effects than crack ever could wreak more havoc and side effects than any of these other drugs, heroin included, ever could. 
we got an incident in Camden where you're damn near having children go crazy after the smoking one joint laced with PCP or wet. So I am not in support of the legalization of marijuana. The only reason why the white man is putting it out there because he is at the same time engineering the dipping of the marijuana in the PCP in wet because the CIA controls all the drugs. It's nothing but an iron fist and a velvet glove. But let me come from another angle, psychologically speaking. Let's look at it from a militaristic standpoint. What did the British do in China? They had an opium war. What did America do to the black community in the 60s? They had a cocaine and heroin war. Do you know one of the best ways to subdue, subdue a people is through chemical warfare? The last thing black people need is free or cheap or legal marijuana. Because instead of fighting white supremacy, Gus, we just want to smoke it away. Instead of organizing against oppression, we're just going to smoke our problems away. In other words, the legalization of marijuana is going to give lazy Negroes another vehicle of escapism. It's going to give them an alternative from fighting against racism to simply sedating themselves amongst the racism. Just like shopping is a drug, and just like church is a drug, the legalization of, a marijuana, of marijuana is another drug to placate and docilate Negroes so they do not organize. What did Frederick Douglass say in slavery? He said on Sunday, during the weekend, you had to get drunk. It wasn't an option. They made you drink. Why did they make you? Why did the slave master make you drink? According to Frederick Douglass, he said, because when you drank, it softened your energy. It softened your disability. Your, 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 it softened your anger against your condition. Frederick Douglass said the masters made the slaves drink and get drunk because they knew that they would be more docile during the week. So they forced you to get drunk. That's all this is. A strategy to do what? Dissipate the revolutionary fervor of black folks through smoking marijuana. I do not support it. I know more people die from cigarettes and cracks than marijuana. I know that. I know more people die from cigarettes and alcohol than they do from marijuana. I know that. But any distraction from revolution, any distraction from organization, anything that distracts us from our immediate responsibility to solve our problems is a weapon of white supremacy and cannot in any way, shape, or form be a benefit to the race. Hmm. Fascinating. Fascinating. I, I want to give pushback just before I give my, my sure. pushback. I want to remind listeners, uh, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, as you stated, medical doctor Francis Cress Welsing. She was on the program in 2013, uh, days after the trial for the murder of Trayvon Martin, where cannabis also came up as a significant point. And she just. We were talking about this subject, and she said she did not support legalization. She gave a lot of the same logic that you just laid out. And so I gave some pushback to her, and she said, as a physician, general, and child psychiatrist, I see a large number of black patients who are exhibiting symptoms of psychosis where there is a correlation between the psychosis and cannabis consumption. She talked about this 
repeatedly. We had her on the program a few times to address this. This is one of the few times when Dr. Welsing was on this program where there was vigorous disagreement, where black people listening in were like, oh my gosh, Dr. Welsing is, is talking crazy. I have respect for her scholarship. The ISIS papers is great, but I don't agree with all. And she even made some of the same points about uh, escapism, uh, and under conditions of white terrorism, us consuming cannabis uh, and just being lazy and not focused uh, and really not having our brain computer computers operating optimally. And people said that that is hogwash, uh, that I have smoked cannabis for years. I was a great student on a roll. I've held down a job. I've been a great husband, a great father. Uh, it has not been in any way detrimental to me functioning uh, and being able to do great things uh, and, you know, still working against racism, white supremacy, studying, doing all the things that I have to do. There are tons of folks I know that are listening that are saying, Dr. Umar, I disagree uh, on two main points. Number one, if we legalize, there are tons of black people who get locked up, uh, who end up losing their right to vote, losing their access to public housing, uh, grant money, scholarship money for college and what have you. There are tons of black people who end up uh, in what you have laid out, stage three, incarceration, all because of cannabis possession, mainly cannabis possession, that this would be great if we could legalize. That would at least keep a good number of black people out of prison. And the second point would be, I do not think that consuming cannabis is just going to have black people lazy, uh, that this is the same sort of racist propaganda that they've laid out for decades now and saying that, oh, my God, reefer madness, basically, that that is not true at all, uh, that you can do cannabis and still work a great job, be a great parent, whatever you have to do, that there's just no merit to that sort of claim. What would your response be? Okay, number one, why was marijuana made illegal in America in the first place? Look at the history. Cocaine was made illegal because it was believed that when black men were intoxicated with the cocaine, they lost a fear of white males. Marijuana was made illegal because it was believed that when black men was intoxicated with the marijuana, they would want to sleep and rape with white women. And anybody can do their research on this. These drugs were made illegal by the government because of false claims of what it induced in the psyche of black males to go and attack and rape white women. Anyone who wants to do the research on it, please go do the research on it. It was made illegal because they said you would rape their women. Now, that was false. But it does speak, as Dr. Wilson says, according to what you said, it does speak to the transformation of consciousness that marijuana induces. But let me draw a distinction here. Because my Rastafari brothers, they smoke weed for religious reasons. But they also grow their own marijuana. Legal marijuana is not going to be sold by black folks. Legal marijuana is going to be grown and harvested by white folks. Now, what do we know about all drugs in drug history? In a racist society, the drugs that are going to black folks are always contaminated with something. We know this. So the, my biggest fear with this whole marijuana piece, Gus, is that they're going to spray the weed that goes to predominantly black neighborhoods. And I'm willing to bet you. And I want everybody to hear me, because I've never been wrong on a prophecy yet. And I don't say that for arrogant reasons. But I have never made a political prophecy that has been wrong yet. And I'm telling you right now that in the next 10 to 20 years, you're going to start hearing reports of medical and psychological problems caused in black people by the legal marijuana 
because it's going to be played with and contaminated by the FBI or the CIA. They know how much black people love weed. They know how much black people love weed. So guess what they're going to do? They're going to spray it with substances that cannot be observed or smelt with the naked eye or the naked nose. That's going to cause all sorts of uh, uh, natural abortions or not-so-natural abort miscarriages in black women. Black men's sperm count going to go down. All types of special cancers going to pop up. It's just amazing, Gus, how we got so much faith in the white man that we would trust his legal weed. And one more thing I want to say on this marijuana piece, in addition to the political, in addition to the medical, let's go to the criminal. Do you know why they finally making this legal? The reason marijuana is being made legal, because locking up black men on gun charges and locking up black men on child support and locking up black men for the control, distribution, and intent to sell of cocaine and heroin has been so successful, Gus, that we can legalize the weed because we got most of these Negroes in jail ain't on weed. They Most of them is on jail on crack, heroin, gun charges, and murder. So guess what? Legalizing the weed is not going to do anything to the mass incarceration rate because the black males are not going to jail for weed. They're going to jail for guns. They're going to jail for child support, and they're going to jail for crack and heroin. So that is not going to reduce our incarceration rate at all. But the reason Negroes think it will is because they still love their masters. You don't, uh, you, you talked about the uh, Rastafarians, they grow their own uh, cannabis if it's legalized. Yes, sir. Then that would legalize uh, if black people here in the States, if they want to grow their own product. We had people who gave no, that. No, 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 no. Remember, Gus, the laws are not for commercial marijuana. The laws are for medical marijuana. Now, some states have opaved the way for commercial. You do have some states where you can purchase commercial marijuana. If not flat out right now, it's coming soon. Mm -hmm. But in Pennsylvania, where I live, the governor just signed a bill, okay, that's going to open up the opportunity for medical marijuana. we got to be clear on this now. Mm -hmm. Commercial versus medical. Most states are paving the way for the medical marijuana. Now, don't get me wrong. It may ultimately become commercial as well. But I want to be clear that you can still go to jail for marijuana possession in a state with a medical marijuana law because you're using the drug for commercial use when it's supposed to be for medical. It's no different than you going to jail for being caught with some Ritalin. It's no different than you going to jail for being caught with Xanax, for you being caught with Valium. For you being caught for Prozac, it's the same thing. Commercial use of a controlled substance still earns you jail time. Okay. If it's uh, like Washington State, it's recreational. So you can, what they have right. here, gotcha. they have the commercials, so they have the shops and everything, and, you know, weed, uh, jelly beans, and you can grow your own. Gotcha. If you have a limited number that you can grow, I think that's the case in uh, Alaska, Colorado, Washington State, Washington, D.C., and Oregon. And I, I'm very, I mean, you can bet the farm. I'm California is going to be on the ballot this year. It is going to pass. You can bet everything on that. Uh, and they have a few oh, other states sure, where I think sure. it's, it's going to be. It's going to be national in a minute. Oh, absolutely. And that, that's what I mean. If it's recreational use where they change it so that you can grow a limited amount uh, in your home or what okay. have you. Uh, and let's, eliminate, let's eliminate the medical side effects. 
Okay. Let's say there will be none. Okay. Let's Let- eliminate any effects on mass incarceration. Okay. I'm going to go straight to the political and the military. How in the hell is this in any way going to be a benefit to a people who systematically and historically are always looking for a way out of their responsibility? How is the recreational usage of marijuana, which does come with a very strong, very strong addictive property, let us not forget that. I know a lot of people as a therapist who have been biologically, chemically dependent on marijuana to the point where they cannot function in life. I mean, why would you give a defeatist people free reign to a substance that will biologically support their laziness and apathy towards their reality? Even if you remove the criminal and the medical gut politically and militaristically, there's no way in hell that this is going to be a benefit to black folks. Instead of fighting white supremacy, we're just going to smoke up our oppression and do nothing about it. Context of white supremacy. Again, Dr. Umar Abdullah Johnson. Uh, just for listeners, we have had uh, this would be Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, medical doctor, uh, Dr. Niana Rasayan, behavioral neuroscientist, uh, Dr. Kamal Kamban, uh, and now Dr. Umar Abdullah Johnson and Neely Fuller Jr. I uh, think all five of them consensus, same opinion. Legalization of cannabis, they do not think that this is going to benefit black people. In fact, I think all of them have said that they see this as just being another subtle means of racism, white supremacy, coming out with the auspices of, hey, this is great. We're looking out for you black people. And that's not what it is at all. That 20, 50 years later, it's going to be, oh, man, this did more harm than good. They tricked us again. All five of them basically have laid out the same logic. This is one of those because we had a lot of people who vigorously disagreed and think this is going to be great for black people. Because Negroes love to have fun. Most oppressed groups of people are always looking for a means to have pleasure under oppression. They don't want to do nothing about the oppression guy. This is uniquely peculiar to the psyche of oppressed folk. I don't care if it's oppressed Chinese. I don't care if it's oppressed black. I don't care if it's oppressed white, Arab, East Indian. Study oppressed people. Study them. They don't never seek to overthrow the oppression until they get a radical leader who comes along and say, hey, we got to do something about this shit. You know what they look for? They look for ways to adapt and adjust and cope with the way of life. They don't want to change it. That's why church is so popular. That's why smoking weed is so popular. That's why shopping is so popular. That's why television is so popular. Because black folks don't want to end the white supremacy they just want to carve out a little bit of room to shake their booty under masses umbrella of control. Context of white supremacy, uh, getting to the school piece. And I think this does have an impact to some degree uh, on the school piece because the cannabis can disrupt your ability to learn. And I'm sure that is. Um, oh man. In- oh man. Don't even go there. I didn't even think of that brother. I'm only dealing with the adults. I didn't even consider, Lord have mercy. So let, let, me, let me get this right. Now, you're dealing with a school psychologist, school principal here. You mean to tell me that my high school students, I'm not even going to mention middle and elementary, 
because if they're going to make it for recreational use, I'm sure they're going to put an age limit. So I don't know if they're going to say 18 to 21. But you know, like I know, if it's recreational, the kids are going to get it, just like cigarettes. Therefore, you got 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th graders coming to schools high on marijuana. Oh, my God. Do you realize that while they are high, first of all, what does marijuana do? What is one of the main physiological side effects of marijuana? It slows the cognitive process. It slows response time. It slows blood pressure. It basically creates a biological laziness, sleepiness, and apathy. That's what it does. In order to learn, you've got to be alert and focused. But marijuana makes you unalert. Marijuana makes you unfocused. Marijuana makes you unmotivated. Marijuana don't give you energy. It takes it. So you mean to tell me our teachers who already have a, a difficult enough time as it is educating black children. I'm talking about the black teachers that care, not the white women who put our kids in special ed every day, but the black teachers who care, who already got a tough enough time competing with cell phones and Internet. They now, on top of all that, got to compete with a child who come to school high. And then after they come off the high gust, they tired as hell, and then once they become addicted to the cannabis, they can't focus again because they need a fix in order to calm. But once they get the fix and calm, that takes away their focus and attention. You know what this is going to do for education? I'm going to tell you right now. It is going to mushroom, blossom, and explode the high school dropout rate in the school-to-prison pipeline, my brother. In fact, i got to do an article on this. In fact, now that I look at it, Gus, I'm certain that the powers that be in their Machiavellian wisdom have already foreseen the impact that marijuana recreational use amongst black teens is going to have on the public school shutdown movement, the screw to prison pipeline, and the high school dropout rate. I will just repeat again because I've you know, pretty much had very similar sentiments as Dr. Umar all the way back 2012 when they legalized recreational use of cannabis in Washington state. And they, and we don't even have a whole lot of black people here, but they already said that it did increase. Uh, and they knew this was going to happen, that it was going to increase uh, amongst younger people. Same thing that you said, alcohol, of course, young people, I think we can all remember. Yes, of course, they're going to have access to alcohol, cigarettes. The age limit here is 21. I think it's the same uh, in the other states that have legalized it. But of course, but the other aspect with legal, when you start having dispensaries and they have weed jelly beans and weed gummy oh, bears God. and all this other cannabis-infused candy and confectionery items, that wow, who do you think that's going to appeal to? Jelly beans and gummy bears that have been infused with cannabis? Who could that possibly appeal to? And I just said, wow, I don't really think people have seen what this is going to look like and the impact that this will have on black people and what this will look like like taking a 50-year perspective we talk about military strategy let's not just think the next five days the next week like what is this going to look like 50 years down the road wow this does not look i'm gonna good. tell you what it's going to look like gus have you ever seen the miniseries walking dead <laughs> yes sir yes sir if anybody on this call tonight has ever seen walking dead that is the black community 20 years after you've had national legalization of recreation marijuana use. That's what you're going to see. Negroes are going to be walking around comatose. Now, mind you, Gus, this marijuana recreational use 
is in addition to the Ritalin. It's in addition to the Adderall, the Prozac, the Cyclert. Now look at the side effects of those drugs. And then you put marijuana on top of that. Oh, my God. What use is your child going to be after you've allowed them to cook their brain with not only weed, but with all of the other dangerous psychotropics that go with it? I want to introduce a term to you and your listening audience tonight. Pharmocracy. Pharmocracy. Pharmacy speaks to controlled drugs and medication. The future of blacks is pharmocracy. White folks is democracy. Black folks is pharmocracy. The drug is the new slave chain. The marijuana is the new slave chain. The Ritalin, the Adderall, these, look what they did. All they did was change it, exchange the physical slave chain for the mental slave chain. Control by drugs is what we're moving into. Wow. What uh, what suggestions would you give if this is what you see? And I mean, that is a chilling comparison that that's what it's going to be like for Walking Dead uh, for black people, which we've kind of discussed as well on this broadcast. What suggestions would you give for black parents, particularly black parents who have their uh, children in the public school system? Woo! I tell you what. I tell you what. Add the legalization of marijuana to the effeminization of black males, the gay agenda in the public school. All I can say, Brother Gus, is these things underscore the need for the Frederick Douglass and Marcus Garvey RBG International Leadership Academy. If anyone ever questioned why that school needs to be residential, I think we've already answered it. Why do they need to stay at that school? Because when they get out of school, look at all the dangers and threats that they're going to be exposed to. Not just gangs and guns. You now got weed, you got crack, you got heroin, you got marijuana dipped with the wet in the PCP. And to be honest with you, Gus, that's going to be my biggest concern with the young folks. I can promise you in black communities, I don't care what the white folks is doing, I can promise you in black communities, Our children will not just be smoking marijuana. And I'm going to tell you why. Because with every drug, you get a tolerance. You get to a tolerance. And in marijuana, you get to the tolerance quicker because it's not as potent as the other drug. That's why they mix it. So what's going to happen with this recreational marijuana? The kids are not just going to be smoking weed. It's not going to give them the kick that they want. The tolerance comes through quickly. So you're talking marijuana. you, You might as well assume that it's going to be dipped with PCP. You might as well assume it's going to be dipped with wet. You might as well assume it's going to be dipped with the angel dust. They're not going to be smoking that pure. They're going to be dipping it. What's going on in Camden, New Jersey, is going to be going on all across this country. And can you imagine a black child high on marijuana laced with PCP and the police tell him to stop and he's staggering staggering around as a member of the walking dead? You know how many more dead black kids we're going to have over this shit, Gus? Could you imagine? Can you imagine how easy it's going to be for police to exterminate black youth when they say stop and the kid don't stop because he's high and incoherent? The police can see that, but he's not going to stop because of that. 
He's going to blow his damn brains out and they'll do the autopsy later and say it was marijuana laced with PCP. We cannot be in support of legal marijuana. Mm, wow. They, uh, that in your state, matter of fact, this was just in the New York Times yesterday. They were talking about standardized tests. I thought of you immediately because when you won the broadcast with us before, uh, you said that when black people, even under these you know horrendous circumstances, when we start to catch up a little bit on some of these standardized tests and we start to close in on what the white students are doing, then they come and change the test. Oh, we got to we got to revamp it. We got to have a new edition of the chest so that black people, they start to erode some of the gains that black students are making. And they had a push. I think some of this was even going on in your state, in, uh, in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia specifically, where black parents started to say, hey, we can opt out of this test. And this became a big controversy. Uh, and it was kind of going back and forth where you had some black people saying, hey, let's opt out of the testing. It's racist anyway. And we don't have to take it. We have rules. We have rights as parents where we don't have to subject our children to this. And you had other people saying, well, we need the test results. That way we can see. Uh, the racism in the school system, and if they're not doing an adequate job teaching in the classroom. This is in the New York Times yesterday. The article is Race and the Standardized Testing Wars. I'm just going to read a quick uh, sentence and then get your commentary. Uh, it reads, uh, but Kaya Henderson, the chancellor of Washington's public schools, also said that doing away with the tests would be most damaging to black and Latino students and those with uh, disabilities. Before No Child Left Behind, there were lots of schools where parents thought their kids were going to great schools, but after you disaggregated the results, you figured out that black kids and Latino kids or special ed kids were actually worse off than similar students in less high-performing schools, she said. We need to know what kind of information. I don't ever want to go back to a time when we don't know. Uh, just your thoughts on these battles about these standardized tests, whether to opt out or not? First of all, and I need your listening audience to be absolutely clear, the standardized test is the new Jim Crow sign. Fifty years ago, if they didn't want you to go to a certain high school, fifty years ago, if they didn't want you to go to a certain private school, fifty years ago, if they didn't want you at Harvard or Yale or the University of Pennsylvania, if they did not want you there, they would put up a sign. And the sign would say, no colored allowed or whites only. They can't do that anymore. White supremacy has gotten technologically sophisticated. They have to hide their messages and strategies in more subtle ways. So instead of using words, white only, they use numbers. 1600 only look at the difference same thing you're still racially controlling your population but instead of being blatant saying we don't want no blacks you don't have to say that all you have to do is look at the average test score that the black child earns raise your admission criteria just a little bit higher make it out of their range and then you make that test score the cutoff the standardized testing movement is nothing but racism disguised with numbers. They are systematically controlling access to opportunity for black children by using these tests. The test movement is the best thing white folks could have created. 
Let me give you an example. Gus, let's say you and I, we want to join the police force. No, not the police force, because they never got enough cops. We want to join, we want to join the fire department. Fire department. Say, hey, we want to be firemen. So you go through the training. You take the test. It comes back. Both of us fail it. But all the white folks passed it. And we like, damn. How the brothers fail it? And they'll come back and say, well, maybe you wasn't prepared or maybe you received an inferior education in the ghetto. Well, here's the problem, Gus. First of all, we were not there when they scored the test. Let me say that again. We were not there when they scored the test. How do you know you actually failed? You don't. That's the power of testing. There's no way to prove that it is fraudulent because the scoring is done in secret. And if anybody thinks this is a conspiracy theory, let me give you a real-life example. I spoke in St. Croix about three, four years ago for the Rastafari Nation, the Bobo Shanti Rastafari. They were celebrating the Earth Day of His Majesty Emperor Haile Selassie. I got the opportunity to meet with a retired New York City school teacher, licensed educator. We sat on his porch as we looked out across the beautiful scenery in St. Croix. And he said, Dr. Umar, you are absolutely right in what you're teaching. Don't you dare stop. He said, I'm living proof. Now, this brother, probably about 60 or 70, retired. He taught years ago. He said, I'm living proof. In fact, I'm going to interview him for the documentary. I said, why do you say that, Baba? He said, when I was teaching in Brooklyn, I failed the teacher exam. I knew I didn't fail it, but I got a letter saying I failed it. Years later, I get a letter from the mail after I investigated my scores because I wanted to see them. And guess what the letter said, Gus? The letter said, we regret to inform you that we made a mistake scoring your assessment. That's right. For the New York State Teacher's License, we regret to inform you that we made a mistake scoring your exam. You actually had a passing score. If that happened to him, Gus, how many other black teachers across the country have been disqualified from teaching off of fraudulent scores? How many black children are actually passing these standardized tests but it cannot be refuted because you're not there when they score it. I'm telling you that standardized testing is the most powerful weapon in the arsenal of white supremacy because it does the same job as the Jim Crow sign, but does it even better. And you can't even question the results. I rest my case. Wow. Wow. With, uh, those numbers, not just standardized tests, some of the other numbers that have been coming out just with education under white terrorism. Uh, we had a report just this weekend uh, in St. Louis, Ferguson, uh, down in St. Louis, Missouri, where they were talking about the astronomical rates of suspensions of black students. Uh, and just, I mean, to, so you can get it clear, uh, in St. or in Missouri, this is for the whole state of Missouri, out of school suspensions of five days or longer nearly 90% of these suspensions went to black students. Black students only make up 16% of the student population in the state of Missouri, but 90, almost 90% of the suspensions that are five days or longer go to black students. 
Uh, and this is not an anomaly. They pull this out where it's very, very similar, regardless of where you happen to be at Massachusetts, wherever. This is just how. Yeah, system- that, that, that was that was even uh, repeated, underlined, underscored and even extended in the United States Department of Education report on national suspension and expulsion rates that came out two years ago. Those numbers are national. Not only that, they found that black boys in preschool, mm. preschool were being suspended and expelled at a rate greater than white boys in senior high school. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You mean to tell me that three, four, and five-year-old black boys are being suspended and permanently removed from school and preschool at a rate greater than white boys in high school? And our kids are still going to those schools. You know why? Because black people do not care enough about their children. I'm not talking individually. That's called selfishness. I'm not talking about you and your children. I'm talking about us. Black people do not care enough collectively about our children to build them the schools that they are entitled to. Isn't it a damn shame that we can buy our children all kinds of expensive Christmas gifts? But we won't buy them an education. And I'm not talking about no education at the racist-ass white private school. I'm talking about an education at a truly African-centered independent school. Why we don't have them, Gus, I'll tell you why. Because under slave psychology, under slave psychology, the victims were taught to never be concerned with your future. Your only concern is today. You live at the will of your master. And when you do manage to get some money, you don't use that money intelligently to build anything. You use that money to have fun. Because your master never wanted you to get out of slavery, so you were forced to spend your money on amusements and entertainments. Look at our athletes and entertainers. Look at them. I just heard the other day that Sean Puffy Combs is opening up a charter school in Harvard. Now, here's my question. Can somebody please explain to me, and this is not just Puffy, this is Jalen Rose in Detroit, this is Magic Johnson in L.A. and across the country with Magic because he got charter schools in Atlanta. Can somebody tell me why in the hell are multi-millionaire black males multi-millionaire black male athletes and entertainers, why are they opening up charter schools, Brother Gus, instead of building their own independent schools? If you open up a charter school, the charter school is owned by the state. You don't own a charter school. If anybody tells you they own a charter school, They're a fool or a liar. Charter schools are public property. Why does Sean Puffy Combs want to open up a publicly funded, publicly controlled charter school? This man is a billionaire, if not almost Michael, uh, excuse me, who I just say, Magic Johnson, a billionaire, if not almost. Why not open up the independent school that will live forever? The Sean Puffy Combs School for the Performing Arts. The Magic Johnson School for Academic Excellence. 
You don't want to do that. You want to open up a charter school. That's like Donald Trump looking for a welfare check. What the hell does a multimillionaire need with a damn charter school? You know what it tells me? One of two things. Number one, they might not know no better. They're not educators. They don't have my expertise. They might not know no better. So I want to give them that respect because I respect all three of them. They might not know that better. They may not know any better. But the other part, too, if they do know better, that tells me that you really are not invested, you really are not interested, and you really are not committed to the future of black children. Because there's no way you can be worth that type of money and not want to spend a single penny of your own money to educate our children. I think you said when we spoke about charter schools last time you were on the program that another key difference with those is that uh, since the state, they have a lot more say-so if it's not an independent school with those charter schools that they say, hey, you're falling behind. We got these standards. Uh, you, Your children, you don't have enough of your population of students that are meeting our state or local academic requirements, so we're shutting, we're revoking your license to have this charter exactly. Well, they're going to put you on corrective action first. Mm. They got to look like they're fair. Remember, white folks, everything is about image and presentation. So they got to make it look like they're giving you due process because the Constitution requires that. So the due process for the charter school is you are now in corrective action, which is normally two years. We're going to give you two years to demonstrate improved growth. And if we don't feel that the amount of growth that you've made has been improved, we're going to take the charter. Two years ago, Gus, 2014, we saw more black charter schools shut down than any other year since charter school was open. Either 2013 to 2014, I think it was 2014. Now, let me give you the Machiavellian strategy. Brother Gus has a charter school in Washington State in the middle of the hood. You're doing an excellent job. But you just got a letter in the mail that 60% of your students did not score basic on the state test. Remember, Gus, you're not there when they score them. And guess what? Your children actually did pass. They actually made minimum basic skills. But you know what? Your building is blocking a new strip mall that they want to build. Your building is blocking a new dormitory that Washington University wants to build. Your, dorm your, your, your school is blocking a new highway, a new police district, a new private uh, residential area for the white folks gentrifying the neighborhood. Guess what they're going to do? They're going to give you a letter and say you're failing, and they're going to put you in corrective action. And guess what? Two years later, they're going to give you another letter. We're sorry to inform you, but you did not make the gains that were required, and we now have to take your charter. Guess what, Gus? You made them gains 50 times over. In fact, your kids might have scored higher than any other school in the state, but you can't prove it. And guess what? Out you go, shut down, school sold to the white folks. They are doing it all over the country. And the reason I'm bringing this out, this academic apartheid, this white supremacy school version, is because a lot of people have criticized me for taking the hard route. Why is he doing the Garvey route? What's this Pan-African shit? Why don't you go get you a couple of charter schools? Why are you trying to raise $2 million and buy St. Paul College? Why, why, why? You know why? Because I believe in what I stand for. And as Garveyites, as revolutionary pan-African nationalists, we believe that what is to be done for black people must be done by black people. What good is opening up a school if I can't control it? You open up a charter school, Gus, you got to teach the gay history. You got to teach the multicultural history. You better make sure you got all the white folks that they want to have in there so it looks multicultural. You got to play them test score games. 
You got to play those. You ain't got enough certified teacher games. You got, you got to deal with being accused of financial mismanagement every other damn year. I'm not jumping through no hoops for white folks. I know what our children deserve, and I'm going to give them the very best or die trying. What, what, what did their president say? Get free or die trying. That's me. Context of white supremacy. I will see if we can nab some of our callers here. Folks have questions that they would like to ask Dr. Umar. Uh, the number to dial 641-715-3640. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you have a question. Uh, the number one more time, six. Four one seven one five three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, we do have a lot of people that dialed in with questions. We're going to try and get through as many of them as possible. We do not have time for speechifying, so if you could just get your question in, that would be great. That way we'll make sure that we get as many folks as we can on to get their questions to Dr. Umar. Uh, see, Thomas in New York. Thomas in New York, uh, if you had a question for Dr. Umar, you should be with us, sir. Good evening. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, good evening to you, Gus. Good evening, Dr. Umar. I'm very um, happy to speak to you. Good evening, my brother. I love you a lot, man. I listen to most of your lectures. I think that you're just brilliant. And um, I tell everyone um, who I know about you. Um, just had two quick questions. Um, this one is kind of long, um, but as a child psychiatrist and a pan-Africanist, um, and I'm not asking this question just because of the Flint situation, because I started looking into this back when uh, Freddie Gray, uh, his whole case broke. But I would love um, to have your educated thoughts on the effects of lead on the brain, specifically how it creates criminals and causes crime, and um, how that affects the black community, being that it seems as though us here in America and in Africa are under constant exposure to lead, um, either in the soil or, or in the um, paints or other things. And I'll mute my line for that question answer. Yes, sir. Lead is a big problem. Lead has been linked to autism. Lead has been linked to developmental delays. Lead has been linked to mental retardation. Lead has been linked to so-called impulse control problems, such as violence and anger. And, of course, lead has been linked to true neurologically-based learning disability, such as dyslexia. It is a problem. As someone who does early intervention evaluations, preschool testing to see if children will need special ed in kindergarten. I can tell you that I have seen firsthand the effects of lead. I was in Flint. I was the keynote speaker for the big brothers and big sisters of Flint, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I told the brothers and sisters there at a power lecture following the keynote address that I want to know why the black leadership and the black attorneys in Flint, Michigan, have not gotten together to enact or bring about a class action lawsuit by the black community against the state of Michigan, against the city of Flint, and against the auto manufacturers in that city who knowingly, knowingly dumped toxic waste into the water supply of Flint, 
going back decades. The city knew that the water was no good for decades, and they knowingly and willingly allowed our brothers and sisters and children to drink that water. That is genocide. That is a crime against humanity, and it meets the United Nations definition of what genocide is. So for me, not only for Flint, but even nationally, and this is why I miss Johnny Cochran. This is why I absolutely miss Johnny Cochran, because he was one of the few attorneys who would take up real issues for black people. And, of course, he was murdered for arguing the reparations issue. But we need attorneys who are going to step forward and take up these kind of issues. Where is the national class action lawsuit against the government for systematic exposure of black communities to lead and other environmental toxins? Lead is only one. There's so many class action, the class action lawsuit for uh, unnecessary and systematic placements in special ed, the class action lawsuit for the systematic medicalization of black boys with Ritalin and other dangerous psychiatric medica- medications. Where's the class action lawsuit for the uh, systematic uh, forced abortions in black women on the uh, birthing table, the aborted fetuses and stillborn children? I mean, we got so many systematic problems that dictate class action lawsuits that our black attorneys need to step up and start doing their job. Now, I do mine because I'm a psychologist. That's why I'm bringing a national independent black parent association. That's why I'm trying to build the Fred Douglas Marcus Garvey Academy. My expertise is education and psychology, so I'm doing all that I can. But we need our blacks in other areas, the social workers and the doctors and the lawyers, to do their part. There's just so much America is getting away with because our black professional class is too afraid to pick up the mantle and fight for the man. Man, thank you for answering that on Dr. Umar, and I'll have one more question for you. Um, but I, I really um, appreciated uh, what you said earlier because I came up with the same analysis with um, Prince and Michael, and based off that same, um, same line of thought, I would think um, that Jay-Z would be next, um, what he's doing with title. Um, but um, I want to know your thoughts on the political theater and the presidential candidates um, this year, and I'll mute my line. Oh, yes, sir. Uh, first of all, Prince's murder, as all, our key, all key political murders, are not just done out of political expediency. Those murders, those assassinations are also carried out as a warning to others. And so the Prince murder was a clear warning to black musicians that you will never, ever cut us out of our cut of your money. That's what Prince was killed. He was killed to let everyone know that we will always get a piece of your action or you will have no action. I'm telling you right now, I think most black musicians, they shook right now. Just like most African leaders were shook after Muammar Gaddafi was assassinated. Everybody right now got the wild look on their face like, damn. If they can do that to Prince, who was independent and much more wealthier than I am, imagine what they could do to me. Just like the African heads of state were like, damn, if they could do that to Muammar Gaddafi, who had a standing army, imagine what they can do to me. I don't care how rich white folks are. I don't care how many guns white folks got. Their number one method of controlling Negroes is fear. 
The control is psychologically based. The control is psychologically based. And that's why they say there's nothing to fear but fear itself. Because once you are afraid of white folks, there's nothing else you can do. What can you do when you are intoxicated with fear? You ain't going to build no school. You ain't going to organize. You ain't going to fight against race because you're scared of white folks. Fear is the weapon. More than the guns, it's the fear that controls black folks. Now, your question relating to the political, uh, 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 the political theater, as you appropriately termed it, and I agree, that's all it is, it's theater. We do not choose the president of the United States. We never have and we never will. They already have chosen who they want to go in the White House. They already got that made up. Now, let me tell you what I think is going on right now. I believe that Hillary Clinton, by virtue of her marriage to Bill Clinton, who is a Bilderberg, a trilateral, and a member of the CFR as well as the, um, the roundtable, I believe Hillary was the choice this time around. I believe it was Hillary. The problem is Donald Trump, who's a white supremacist, who also is a CFR, I believe, and Donald Trump is also a Bilderberg. But guess what? No one expected the public to react to Donald Trump the way that they did. They did not expect poor whites to find any relevancy in a filthy rich white man running for president. But guess what? They underestimated the impact of authenticity, originality, and sincerity. I'm going to say it again. They underestimated the impact of authenticity, originality, and sincerity. Donald Trump, publicly, his public presentation is total opposite that of President Obama. Obama was a wimp. Obama was a coward. Obama didn't want to answer no questions. Obama skated around every issue. And that's why he lost popularity in his second term, because you didn't know if he was coming to go. He wasn't man enough to stand on a square. Trump is. He's a fool. He's a racist. He's ignorant. He don't know what the hell he's talking about, but he is authentic. He is original, and he is sincere. And white folks were so fed up with the Clinton and so fed up with the Bushes and so fed up with the Obamas that when Donald Trump began to speak how he felt, it may have not been the truth, but it was truthfully Trump. White folks were thirsty for an honest politician. And whether Trump is honest or not, and we know he's not, at least he appears to be. So now the Republican National Convention got a problem. Here's their problem. They have been all on the media saying that no matter how many votes or primaries that Donald Trump wins, he will not be our nominee. Our convention is controlled by delegates and superdelegates. And if Donald Trump don't get enough of our delegates, he is not getting the nominee. We don't care how many primaries he wants. In other words, they're telling their Republican Party members that you do not choose our nominee. We do. They have a problem, gentlemen. White supremacy has an internal issue. Now, this ain't got nothing to do with white folks. Excuse me. This ain't got nothing to do with black folks. But I want you to understand this. Because, as the quote goes, the best laid plans of men often go astray. Here's the issue with the Republican National Convention. If they do not nominate Trump, 
and they give it to someone else, all the Republicans are going to see that their vote don't count, that the whole system is rigged, which it is anyway. And you know what's going to happen? If they nominate somebody else, the Republican folk being so upset and hurt and disappointed that their party overlooked their opinion, they're not going to vote at all. And the power structure will get its president in Hillary Clinton. So the Republicans got a problem. We don't want Trump. But if we give him the nom- if we don't give him the nomination, we will have an internal rebellion within our party. Now, let's say they do give him the nomination. Now, the power structure got a problem. You want to know why? Because you got intelligent Hillary Clinton, intelligent woman, knows how to play the game. Her husband is one of the most popular presidents of all time, even though he lied under oath. But Hillary is the same old thing. She's the same old gatekeeper for white folks. Rich white folks against the poor white folks. I ain't even talking about us. We don't matter. Okay? So, in a head-to-head competition, I don't see how Hillary's pre-scripted questions and answers are going to compete with Donald Trump's off-the-cuff authenticity, originality, and sincerity. Now, let me take y'all back real quick, and I'm going to end this real quick so we can go on. In 2000, Al Gore ran against George Bush for the presidency of the United States. Most of y'all remember this because it was a historical election. Why? Because Al Gore beat George Bush in the popular vote. He beat him. But George Bush got the White House because he received two more popular votes. He's Skull and Bones. He's Rothschild. He's Bilderberg. He's Trilateral. He's CFR. They said, don't know Al Gore get in over our boy. So they trumped the system, gave Bush two more votes, and said, Donald Trump, although you had a million more popular votes, that shit don't matter. We decide who runs the country. What did, Donald, what did uh, Al Gore do? He went quietly into the wing. The very next time the Nobel Peace Prize came out, they gave Al Gore a Nobel Peace Prize for environment to placate him for robbing him of the presidency. In your lifetime, you saw the people choose one person and the power structure choose another. Let's fast forward to 2016. Here we go, 16 years later. If they do that shit to Donald Trump, let's say they do it to Donald Trump. Donald Trump wins the popular vote over Hillary assuming that they're the two nominees, Donald Trump wins the popular vote over Hillary. Donald Trump wins by a million votes. I think he'll win by more. But Donald Trump wins by a million popular votes. But Hillary gets two or three or four or five more electoral college votes. Do you think Donald Trump is going to ride into the wind like Al Gore did? Hell no. Donald Trump is going to expose the American electoral system as a con game and a fraud, which is what it is. And he's going to incite poor white folks to rise up. He's not going to speak of violence, but in exposing the system, they will get violent. Donald Trump has the ability. I don't know if he has the courage. I don't know if he has the courage, but Donald Trump has the ability to form in a rebellion in this country of poor white folks against the government, as was done in the 1700s by the American colonists against the British crown. I don't know if he got the courage. But in your lifetime, you may see a civil war kicked off if they give Hillary that White House, although Donald Trump wins the popular election. America got an issue because they never expected him to get this far. Let's see how this plays out. Context of white supremacy. Uh, Caller at 5640-5640. Did you have a question for Dr. Umar? You should be with us. 
Good evening, Dr. Johnson and uh, Gus. Good evening. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask Dr. Uh, Johnson um, what he thought of the young girl who died in the bathroom uh, um, as a result of being part of the, the fight, uh, fight amongst, I guess, other girls, um, and just also just the seeming intra-group violence that a lot of, you know, I, I've noticed a lot of black youth are part of. Um, there was another brawl in Georgia just outside of Augusta where I think ultimately nine people were charged and as a result of a young uh, man uh, who, uh, who died. And so I just wanted to get Dr. Johnson's thoughts on that. Thank you. Yes, excellent question. I'm very familiar with the situation. I have people who are down in Wilmington, which is only a 30, 40-minute ride from Philadelphia. I am very, very, very saddened by the situation. For those of you who are not familiar, about two or three days ago in Wilmington, Delaware, a young sister, 15 years old, 10th grader, got jumped in a bathroom by other girls. And I believe she was in the stall. And I also heard that other boys came into this girl's bathroom. And they began to beat her up over a boy. From what I understand, some of the girls involved did not go to the school. They snuck in. But others did go to the school. And in fighting and trying to protect herself, she was stabbed. And she also fell and hit her head on the sink, which most people attribute as the cause of her death. They had to fly her out by helicopter to the medical center where she was pronounced dead on arrival. The very next day at the same school, one of the students who allegedly was involved in that bathroom murder by beating over a boy was somehow led, dragged, caught, in the lunchroom, and from what I'm being told, nearly the entire student body of this high school, and you know how many kids attend a comprehensive high school, commenced to attack this young lady who allegedly was involved in the bathroom incident. They said they beat her unmercifully for being involved in the other girl's murder and that she is now in the hospital. I'm saying all this to say that I will probably be going to Wilmington. I've offered my services as a school psychologist to counsel, to talk with, to support the teachers, the families, the parents, any way I can. That's what we do. And there's going to be a program that one of the politicians there is going to be holding for the parents of murdered children. And I believe I'll be getting invited to speak to the parents. Brothers and sisters, white people cannot solve the problem of our youth because they are not their children. The only solution they have is a bullet. Our children are out of hand because we allow them to be out of hand. Nobody spends time with their kids anymore. Their children are raising themselves. Poor kids are raising themselves because parents are desperate to take care of the basic needs. Rich black children or middle-class black children are raising themselves because their parents are more concerned with their career than they are with raising their children. Apples do not fall far from the tree. 
And although many people would love for me to blame the parents of these children, I do not blame the parents alone. I blame the community. Children don't belong to families because we ain't got no families. They belong to the community. The church is responsible for what happened in that bathroom. The politicians are responsible for what happened in that bathroom. The community-based organizations are responsible for what happened in that bathroom. The fraternities and sororities are responsible for what happened in that bathroom. The local black businesses are responsible for what happened in that bathroom. All of us on this phone are responsible for what happened to that bathroom. We need to take back our community. We need to take back our youth. And until we do, this situation is going to continue to spiral out of control. And I'm telling you what's going to happen if we don't do something quick. What's going on in certain African countries is going to start happening in this country. When the youth take up arms, take up arms, and rise up against the entire community. If we don't check this shit soon, we're going to have to fight our children to get it back under control. Definitely appreciate that question uh, and the response, Dr. Umar. Uh, the caller, I think this is our retired firefighter in Florida, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, did you have a question for Dr. Umar? <clears throat> Greetings, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, uh, I uh, have two questions. Uh, first question uh, with to uh, Dr. Johnson. Uh, with the advent of suspensions, uh, expulsions, even tardies and, and other uh, records that go within uh, your grade school, your grade school uh, files, uh, could you explain to us on how those records actually filter into a student? as they become a quote-unquote adult, and how that can factor in to employment, uh, getting loans, or, or other important things that uh, a person is going to have to rely upon in order to compensate themselves and be able to take care of family uh, later on in life. When a student leaves high school, whatever was in that record can be requested as part of the application process for the military, for college, for trade school, or for a job. So that record always exists, and it can always be requested or subpoenaed. It is never a foregone conclusion. Now, most school districts hold on to records. I think they're required by law to keep them for 10 years. So basically, after 10 years, it will be difficult to access them. But, of course, we all know that after those first 10 years out of high school, those are the most critical in terms of a child laying the foundation for their future. What I often recommend that parents do over and over again, and I'll be recommending this again tomorrow on tomorrow morning, 6 to 8 a.m. parent call for those who have questions about their children, please call in. You should request a copy of your child's record once every three years at the minimum. You can do it every year if you want. But at least once every three years, I think, allows you to stay on top of the documentation therein because federal law allows you to challenge 
any documentation in your student's record that you feel is inaccurate or inaccurately reflects upon your child. Suspension notices, write-ups, test scores, anything that was exaggerated, anything misrepresented, anything that does not reflect the actual truth of the situation can be removed. Every school district must have an officer that oversees parental complaints and challenges to student documentation. This is a must for black parents because so many of our children are being denied entry into certain colleges, private schools, independent schools, even charter, charter schools because of documentation that reflects negatively upon them in the student record. So please, parents, if you're on this call, get a copy of your child's record. Three-sentence letter, a three-sentence letter. Principal Johnson, I am requesting a complete copy of my son, Robert Thompson's student record to include all discipline, standardized tests, classroom, special education, and other documentation. Anything that has my son's name on it in your school, I would like to have a copy. I understand that this is my right under the Federal Educational Rights and Privacy Act of 1974, FERPA 1974. Please let me know if there is a cost associated with my request, and please let me know when I can expect to pick up my copy. They normally will charge you for the copy. It's only about twenty dollars. It's no big deal, and it normally takes a week or two to present the documentation. It is the law; you cannot be refused. But I could count the number of parents on one hand who actually request their student records, and most of the parents I know who do request the record learned of the law from me. And that's not to toot my horn or anything like that. But when it comes to family rights and parent rights, I'm not aware of any educator or psychology in black, modern black history who has done more, and that includes our ancestors. I can't think of one who has done more to educate our parents on school law than the man you're talking to. Please get copies of your students' records once every three years at least. Thank you, sir, for that info information. Thank you. Thank you, my brother. And I'm working on getting down to Jacksonville, Florida. I'm working on getting down to Jacksonville. I'm working on getting down to Fort Lauderdale. And I will be coming to Dayton, excuse me, Daytona Beach, uh, Florida as well. I was supposed to speak at uh, Bethune-Cookman College, uh, but I think uh, there was a homosexual revolt. And um, they declined. They, they, they withdrew the request. But I will be coming down there anyway. Wow. Did you have Go ahead. Did you have another question? Yes, and, and, I, and I hope I hope that this doesn't uh, turn out to be uh, uh, incorrect on what I want to ask. I, I, I was listening to a uh, a, uh, a well-known uh, radio program where you, uh, Doctor Johnson, was supposed to have been a guest on it, uh, and I know that. Uh, uh, Marcus Garvey was connected with the idea of trans transporting back to Africa to a, a certain degree. And uh, the, the host mentions that within the interview 
that uh, that's all you, quote unquote, that's all that you was talking about. And I've never, I, I, I know that you, you are connected with, with uh, uh, Marcus Garvey's uh, 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 goals and, 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 uh, and, and whatnot, stuff like that, but I've never heard you made, made that a precedent. So uh, I guess the question is, is that could you explain to me on how that, that, that the, the connection, that the conversation got, got crossed up to whereas that's, that's all she had to report as far as the, the host on, the, on this radio program? I'm talking about the Karen Hunter show. Yes, you, sir. Uh, yes, sir. Um, I'm going to speak about the issue in general. I can't speak to the show itself. I'm familiar with the show. I think I was even on the show once, and we got into a serious disagreement. A very masculinized black woman, I believe, or she was. Nonetheless, here's the issue. My Garvey history. I'm former minister of education for the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League. I am former first vice president of Division 121 in Philadelphia of the UNIA ACL. Next year, I will be celebrating 20 years of membership for the UNIA and ACL. I have been a Garveyite all of my life, and many people, by virtue of my prominence and stature within the black consciousness community, as well as on the international scale, I am probably the foremost Pan-Africanist in the world at this particular time. And with being that, I am almost also the foremost Garveyite in the world. And so there's people, for reasons of jealousy and animosity, who do not like the fact that I am the most prominent Pan-Africanist and Garveyite in the world. For example, I had an issue with the UNIA going back to 2005, 10 years ago, where it was, I was threatened to have been thrown out of the UNIA, but I never was. And when I resigned as Minister of Education, I gave it up freely. I was invited by the Embassy of Jamaica. The Embassy of Jamaica in Washington, D.C. invited me to be the keynote speaker for the Marcus Garvey program. They informed me at the time that one of the leading members of the UNIA, who is the current President General of the UNIA, had contacted them and tried to persuade them to uninvite me. But because I was who I am, and because there's no one who carries the energy of Marcus Garvey like Dr. Umar Johnson, they allowed me to come over and above the objections of the organization itself. So that is might help clarify some of that. I am not an officer in the UNIA. As I said, I resign those titles. But I am still a member of the Baltimore Division of the UNIAACL. And I have my own organization, Team Pan-African, a.k.a. the International Movement for the Independence and Protection of African People, through which I do all of my Pan-Africanist work. And that is because the UNIAACL has been plagued with internal fights, power structures, power struggles, and divisions. There's two UNIAs right now, at least two. It's split because of unfair dealings and unfair practices. So when you meet people in the UNIA, you've got to ask them which one do you belong to because it's been split, which is such a shame and dishonor 
to the legacy of the Honorable Marcus Messiah Garvey because the UNIA split before. There's been at least two or three splits in the UNIA, and it had to be healed. Mind you, this is the largest and most successful black organization in modern history. This is the organization that gave us the red, black, and green flag. This is the organization that laid down the ideological overthrow of white supremacy in Africa. So there's Garveyites who take issue with me because of our prominence as a Garveyite. But it don't stop there. Some of you who follow my work know that I just went through something today. Today I had to go through something because a relative of mine, as you know, I'm related to Frederick Douglass, by way of his first cousin, Stephen Henry Belly, and half-brother, Stephen Henry Belly. Their mothers were sisters, and the slave master was their dad. The same Stephen that Frederick Douglass talks about in his autobiography. That's my four-times great-grandfather. But there's a Negro within the family who's trying to position himself as a, a Frederick Douglass expert. He attacked me, and so I had to respond. So not only do I have those issues with Garveyite, i got issues within my own family now, the Bailey family, of Negroes who are tired of my name being associated with Frederick Douglass. That's just jealousy and envy. I don't pay it any mind. Even if I was not related to Frederick Douglass, even if I was not a Garveyite, I would still be where I am because I was put here by Almighty God. And I say that humbly. I got a job to do. I got a destiny to carry out. My name, Ifa Tunde means destiny has returned. I was named that. I didn't name myself. I was named that. So I'm just staying focused on what I got to do. I give my life to our people. I'm not a hotel hustler. The money that I make from lectures goes right back into my programs, not to mention all the free work I do under the table that nobody knows about because you're not supposed to brag about stuff you do from your heart because that ain't your blessing. So I'm just going to keep on keeping on but people like that are going to come and go we just got to stay focused and not get distracted by all the nonsense and tomfoolery that exists within the so-called black conscious communities appreciate that uh retired firefighter uh caller at nine seven six nine nine seven six nine did you have a question for dr umar i agree can i be heard yes sir um good evening dr umar um, I read a report that the suicide rate in the United States is at a 30-year high where the rate for white men and white women increased and the, the rate for black men decreased. I was wondering what were your thoughts on this? Yes, sir. Well, firstly, I do not believe that the rate for black men and black women has decreased. Uh, and I say that as a therapist. And as a school psychologist, I'm constantly hearing about suicide. I just heard about a suicide last week or the week before last. I heard about a suicide attempt last week. Suicide for black men has been up 800% since the 1980s, and for black boys, even higher. Now, if there was a decline, you got to remember that it can lie with statistics. Let me tell you what a decline can be. A decline can be that the black male suicide rate has went up 800% in the past 20 years. But because it dipped below that level by one half of a percent in 2015, you know what they will say? They will say black suicide has went down. Because one less person took their life, they'll say that black suicide went down. So it's very important to look at the numbers, which they don't like to show you. They love to give you the interpretation. 
See, mm-hmm. you don't want nobody's interpretation. Give me the facts and let me arrive at my own interpretation. But white folks don't like to do that. They like to give you their interpretation. And they want you to, to treat their interpretation as the fact. And that's why as black people, I'm constantly trying to teach and train our people to separate the facts from the interpretation. You see? Now, here's the thing. I do agree that suicide is at a 30-year high for everybody. You know why? Because people in America are miserable as hell. That's why the Trump situation is a threat to the power structure. That's why the Trump situation is a potential threat. Remember, if he ain't got the courage, then nothing I'm saying is going to mean anything. Let me say that again. If Trump ain't got the courage or the real sincerity, nothing I'm saying about a rebellion is going to mean anything. But he has the potential. He has the potential to sow the seeds for another civil war in in this country, a significant one. But with the suicides, people are miserable in this country. People are out of work. People are unhappy. People are unmarried. People are strung out on cigarettes, alcohol, television, shopping, sex. People are miserable in this country. Look at all the suicide killers. Look at all the random acts of violence. Look at all the violence in our neighborhood. But the reason America looks healthy is because America is rich. America looks healthy because America is technologically sophisticated. See, that's why as African people, we have to return to our culture. Marcus Garvey said, if the black men and women are not careful, you will drink in all the poison of Western civilization and die from the effects of it. We have to return to our culture. What do you mean, Dr. Umar? What I mean is, don't judge America through the protocol of white supremacy. White supremacy says, look at how much money we got. White supremacy says, look at how many people got college degrees. White supremacy says, look at all the millionaires. White supremacy says, look at all the technological advancements, the cell phones and the Internet and the Wi-Fi and the HDTV and the plasma screens and the helicopters. White supremacy says, judge the quality of happiness by material acquisition. That's white supremacy. Judge the quality of happiness by material acquisition. That's European culture, our culture, African culture. We say, judge the quality of happiness, by the quality of spirituality, the quality of relationships, and the quality of family life. That's African. We don't care about TVs, cars, clothes, pocketbooks. We don't give a damn about millionaires. That's not African. African people, we look at the quality of our relationships, the stability of the family, the peace of mind of our people, the tranquility of our elders, the happiness and joy of our children. That's how we judge. We don't judge in materialistic terms. But when you judge from a Eurocentric perspective, America is the greatest place on earth. But if you judge from an African-centered perspective, it's the worst place on earth. Wow. I have one, just one more question. Um, sure. I've been noticing a phenomenon where um, young black kids are getting accepted into multiple Ivy League schools and landing multiple scholarships. Now, I'm not taking anything away from these kids, but I find the media coverage on them a little suspicious. Um, what are your thoughts? Yes, sir. Just like they're using charter schools to depopulate predominantly black public schools, they are using predominantly white institutions, PWIs, to depopulate the HBCUs 
so they can be overtaken by white folks or purchased by developers, opportunists, gentrifiers, and transformed into a totally different type of an institution. A couple of months ago, we had a situation where black students at predominantly white institutions led by the football players at the University of Missouri rose up in protest against white supremacy. I was happy. I was ecstatic. I was proud. Not because I agreed with the methodology or even the purpose, but because I was tired and thirsty of seeing a lack of political activism by black college students at HBCUs or PWIs. Have you realized in the past 40 years, we've had almost no campus-based black protest activity? Huey P. Newton was a college student. H. Rap Brown was a college student. Stokely Carmichael was a college student. The sit-in movement was led by college students. The Freedom Ride was led by college students. Dr. King may have been the face of the civil rights movement, but it was college students that that fueled it. But that ended with Dr. King's murder because the United States government decided upon a plan to create a black bourgeoisie and by uplifting college-educated black folks that would separate them from the rest of us and create a talented temp. But you know what began to happen under the Obama administration? Because of Obama's neglect of black folk, college-educated blacks were beginning to see that there was no difference between them and the poor blacks. Yeah, they had a bachelor's degree. They had a master's degree, but guess what? They were still in the homeless shelter. They were still in the welfare line. They were still in need of Medicaid. So the black college students said, wait a minute. I'm supposed to be doing better because I got this paperwork or I'm in this university. But under Obama, white supremacy got so bad that it tore away the illusion of difference that allegedly existed between poor blacks and college-educated blacks, and they stood up to rebel. And I was happy for that. And I would never, ever demean it. I was proud of it. I was even happy at it when I had a chance to address the student protesters in Cape Town, South Africa, in October. That was historic. But guess what, y'all? There's a contradiction. What is the contradiction in the black student protest at the predominantly white institution? Here's the contradiction. St. Paul's College is closed down for lack of black student enrollment in economics. St. Augustine is being threatened with closure. Cheney and Lincoln University threatened with closure. Wilberforce and Central threatened with closure. If you really want to fight against white supremacy. You don't beg them to treat you right as you give them twenty or $30,000 of your money. That doesn't make any damn sense to beg a man to treat you right because you're paying them thirty grand a year at a Division One school. If you really want to fight white supremacy, you cripple it. And how do you cripple white supremacy? You take your $30,000 and give it to Howard. Give it to Hampton. Give it to St. Augustine. Give it to Cheney. Give it to Lincoln. Give it the Wilberforce. Give it the Central. But you don't give it to the white folks. So the, the irony or the, the hypocrisy, or should I say the mistake, because they babies. So we never want to criticize our babies. Let them get their feet wet with struggle. Sometimes we can be too quick to criticize. 
I didn't criticize the young folks because I'm glad they're doing something. But as they grow and develop their political consciousness, I need them to see that the right act would have been to withdraw and take your money and your time to the HBCUs. Mm. Wow. Thank you for answering my question, Dr. Umar. Thanks for taking Thank the call, you, my guys. brother. Yes, sir. Uh, caller at 0613-0613. Did you have a question for Dr. Umar? Uh, caller, last four digits, 0613-0613. Did you have a question or are you just listening? Javier? Yes, sir. Hey, uh, how's it going? Greetings to the host and greetings to the guests and listening and calling. I just had a quick question. Um, I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and uh, where I am, it's a whole lot of daycares, um, and it's like a thriving business, I would say, and uh, I see a lot of black people man, going into that business, and they're going into it with the um, intention of, like, to make money. Um, there's no, um, like thought of developing the children into high-functioning human beings, and uh, I wanted to know, and I think you said you was in Pennsylvania, like, where are you at? Are you seeing the same thing? Um, if not, uh, what's your take on what I just uh, spoke about, and if you are seeing the same thing, just what's your take on, you know, people looking at the children as money instead of... Uh, just developing them as to the highest function and person that they can be. And thank you for taking the call. Well, I would say to your question, my brother, that you hit the jackpot, that black children are still the slaves of America. Black children are still the opportunity of America. Black children are still the commodities of America. You are absolutely right. I see all kinds of daycares and so-called preschools, not just in Philadelphia, but around the country, and there are exceptions to the rule. Let me be clear. There are exceptions to the rule. However, they are few, excuse me, and far in between. That's why we need the Fred Douglas Marcus Garvey Academy, because I'm sick and tired of testing kindergartners for special ed when the only problem they have is they went to a daycare that did nothing but play music, dance, sing, and put them in front of racist cartoons all damn day. We got kids coming out of preschools who can't even spell their name. Wait a minute. This child been with you for two years. His whole fourth year of life, his whole fifth year of life, and in many cases they've been in the preschool since they was in daycare. So from birth to age six, and don't know their numbers, birth to age six, don't know their letters. Birth to age six, don't know their address. Birth to age six, don't know their parents' names. Birth to age six can spell their own name. It is a travesty. I am so tired of people hustling our children. It makes me absolutely sick to my stomach. But that's all right, because we coming. We coming with that Fred Douglas Marcus Garvey Academy. We coming with that state-of-the-art daycare. We coming with that preschool. And when I say state-of-the-art, I'm not talking about laptops and HDTVs and iPhones, that's not state-of-the-art. That's distraction. I don't need that in my school. When I talk about state-of-the-art, I'm talking about teaching them kids how to read by day three. When I'm talking about state-of-the-art, I'm teaching them children how to count by the time they two. 
When I mean by state-of-the-art, I mean state-of-the-art instruction to maximize the cognitive process of the melanated brain. That's the state-of-the-art I'm talking about. See, black parents are getting distracted by the way the schools look. Oh, this is a beautiful school. My child got an iPad. My child got their own laptop. They go on filch. But is your child learning any damn thing? We got to get back to the basic. I don't care if the school got a dashiki. I don't care if the kids know some Swahili words. I don't care if they can beat a drum. I don't care if they got a laptop. I don't care if they got an iPad. I'm judging that school by one thing and one thing only. Academic and intellectual proficiency. All of the window dressing and surface dressing means nothing to Dr. Umar. Why do you think none of these independent African schools called me in to do an evaluation? I evaluate schools. I evaluate. They're not calling me in. They don't want nobody to tell them what they need to do better. But they all on Facebook talking about we got an independent African school. We doing this. We doing that. But who has evaluated the quality of your instruction? Of course, the black parents love you because they don't know no better. All they know is their kid ain't being suspended. All they know is their kid learning about black history. All they know is their kid got a black teacher. So they come. It's better than the public school. It's better than the public school. But is it the best type of school for our children? I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, when FDMG come, we exposing. And I don't mean exposing by going to any school and saying anything, but we just going to expose by the quality of what we do. And when we open, we will... We will respectfully accept any challenge from any white school, Asian school, Arab school, African Senate school for a healthy competition, a healthy academic competition between the students. I would love to see that because a lot of parents got their kids in these so-called African Senate schools and they ain't learning nothing. They ain't learning nothing. They got two or three kids who are excellent and the rest of them struggling like hell. And that's not all of them. We got examples of schools that, independent African schools that are doing a good job. We got examples of independent, excuse me, not independent because charter schools can't be independent, but we got examples of African-centered charter schools that are doing a good job. Don't get me wrong. There's some schools out there that are doing a good job. I'm not saying everybody's bad. Don't you, don't take that from me. But I know for a fact that some of them ain't doing nothing but a whole type of hustling your money because you don't know how to evaluate instruction. I know how to evaluate instruction. So a lot of this worship going on around, it don't faze me because I see what you're up to. You're just painting the image of your school to look like it's something that it's not. I know what's going on. You can't fool me. I'm a principal. I know how this thing goes. But I say all that to say that if you haven't donated to the Fred Douglas Marcus Garvey Academy, please go to GoFundMe.com, GoFundMe.com slash Dr. Umar, D-R-U-M-A-R. Make a donation. If you want to mail it in, you make your check of money order payable to FDMG Academy. I repeat, FDMG Academy, P.O. Box 6872, Philadelphia, PA. P.O. Box 6872, Philadelphia, PA. 19132. If you forget the address, all you got to do is text me, 215-989-9858, and I will send you the mailing address. Okay? And if you want to work at the school, send me your resume, FDMG Resumes, FDMG Resumes at gmail.com. We are coming. It's not a question of if. It's only a question of when and where will the first school be built.
Uh, let's see, lady in New York. Did you have a question for Dr. Umar? You should be with us. Hello, um, Dr. Umar. Hello, oh, guys. Please, Queen. Um, um, can I, am I, is my volume okay? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Okay, um, Dr. Umar, I have a um, few questions, and so um, I'm hoping that you can be as quick and concise as possible. Um, are you planning on moving or starting a school in Rochester, New York? No, I will not be moving to Rochester, and I don't think I'll be starting a school there. Thank you. How do you feel about um, spanking as a disciplinary tool for black children? I think spanking is necessary at times. It should not be the primary mode of discipline. If spanking is the primary mode of discipline, then you are risking child abusing your child. Spanking should only be done, in my professional opinion, when it is warranted, and I would say that it is only warranted when the child does something that is so significant of an infraction that it could significantly put their life or someone else's life or safety at risk. For example, if a child is caught in a stolen car, that's grand theft auto, not to mention that you can get into an accident and take your life or take the life of someone else. You get your ass whipped for that. If you find out your child is having unprotected sex, having sex, they get a conversation. Children are interested in the opposite sex, and as they grow up, the testosterone is going to start calling that estrogen, but hormones are going to pop. We can have a conversation about sex, but if I find out you had unprotected sex, you might get your ass whipped because you could have caught AIDS, herpes, you could have gave it to someone else, you could have got somebody pregnant, or you could have got pregnant. That's not acceptable. Playing with matches. If I catch my child playing with matches, you're getting your ass whipped because playing with matches can get the house burned down. Playing with matches can get you third-degree burns. Playing with matches could get your grandmother burned down upstairs. So it all depends on the significance of the infraction. If it is a major safety or life-threatening infraction, I believe spanking is warranted. But if it is an everyday infraction, your homework was late, you forgot to do your homework, you didn't do your chores, you're going to get a consequence. You don't get off the hook. You're going to get a consequence. But physical punishment should only be done in a select set of circumstances. Um, thank you. The last is about curriculum. Um, so um, do you already have a curriculum established for your school? Yes, I do. And the six and core components of the curriculum will be, in addition to the major academics, such as math, science, history, social studies, you're required to have that whether you're independent or not. But the six core sciences, in addition to those, will be political and military, agricultural and agronomical, diet and nutrition, African spirituality and cosmology. Uh, there will also be the science of the black family and the black community. And so let me make sure I got all six. Political and military, economic and financial, how overlooked, which is very critical. Dietary nutritional, agricultural, agronomical, science of the family and community, and astrology and spirituality. Those are the six core sciences. Okay, and my last question is, will you be making your curriculum available for students who, for whatever reason, are not attending your up-and-coming school? Okay, the way that's going to go is the school is going to come first. No one gets my curriculum before I have a school. No one. And the reason for that is curriculum means nothing unless it is implemented the way it was designed to be implemented. You have a certain cake that you make, and you give the recipe to all the mothers in your neighborhood. But none, the cake don't come out right. You gave them the curriculum, 
your recipe is your curriculum. They made the cake, and all of them did it wrong. You know why? Because they didn't have your direct supervision. Curriculum is only as good as the supervision and implementation. So what I have to do is I have to show that my curriculum works before I give it out. So if somebody comes back and says, well, this don't work because I tried it, I can say it's working because I got 500 students, and all of them are at the top of their game compared to anybody on the planet, not just America. See, I'm not comparing my students to white kids in America because they're at the bottom of the list of the most 25 industrialized nations in the country. Why am I comparing my kids to white kids? That's what the Afrocentric schools do in the black charters. They say, well, look where we are compared to the white kids of America. But look where they at. They're nowhere. That's no comparison. Comparing yourself to the worst of the pack, that means nothing. You see, but to uh, get back to the question, once the school is functioning, I do plan to extend it into a cyber school model, which means that children who cannot physically be present at FDMG can be present on a big screen TV by monitor, uh, and be able to tap right into the classroom. Cyber school, excuse me, virtual school, not cyber, virtual. Virtual means they're in the classroom. They can see the teacher, the teacher can see them, they can see their classmates, and the classmates can see them, and they can be educated by virtual school. However, they will still have to come to the school four times a year to get a mandatory academic and social boot camp because the primary responsibility of schooling and FDMG is to socialize the children. You cannot be a part of my community if you only participate by way of big screen TV. The monitor is not enough. I need you to fill me. I need you to fill your classmates so even our virtual students will be required to come to the campus at some times during the year. Um, do you have an – I'm sorry, I know I said I had one more question. Do you have an estimated um, time frame on when you plan on opening your school? Yeah, when y'all give me all the money I need to open it. Oh, so I, I have donated. And I thank you for that. Uh, my first choice is still the St. Paul's College. It's still available. I'm still shooting for that. We're going to be crossing $700,000 shortly, so we're almost to a million. Once we hit a million, I'm going right back to St. Paul's and say, listen, I got a million dollars now. Don't nobody else want this school but me. Can we please stop playing games? And can y'all please give me the school? Because while y'all sit here with an empty-ass campus, we got millions of black kids who are going to shit because y'all worrying about money and not worrying about their future. So I'm hoping that when we cross that million-dollar mark, I'm hoping I can step to them and get that school. But if I don't, we're not going to cry over spilled milk. I'm still looking at other schools. I understand that there's a possibility I may have to open up a regular day school before I can move to residential. If we got to crawl before we can walk, then so be it. If we got to crawl before we can walk, so be it. But the school is coming. It's coming soon, and it will definitely be here within 24 months. I can guarantee you that. Thank you for your time. I'll mute my line. Uh, the caller at 0022-0022. Did you have a question for Dr. Umar? What's going on, Dr. Umar? Peace, my brother. How you doing, man? I'm from Philly like you. Uh, quick question, man. I got a little son. Uh, for the daycare, and they mandatory the shots. You know, I really ain't for all the shots. Is there any way I can get past that? If it's a public daycare, you can get an exemption. If they get public funding, you can get an exemption. Uh, you can do a notarized letter. You can get an exemption from your medical doctor. Your medical doctor is the quickest. Your medical doctor is really the quickest way. They can give an exemption, and you take that to the daycare, and life goes on. That's the quickest. But you can also do a notarized letter. You can also go to the county board of health, and they have an exemption form that you can fill out and get notarized. If it's public, if it's private, 
it, it can be kind of difficult if they private. If they don't take public money and they private and they say everybody got to be immunized to come here, that could be kind of tough to get around. But if they publicly fund it, then they cannot deny your child on the basis of immunization alone. Okay. Thank you. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, my brother. Appreciate you. Hope to, hope to see you May 7th in South Philly. I'll be speaking on Saturday, May 7th in South Philly. Uh, if you need a flyer, make sure you shoot me a text. Same thing for the Queen. The previous call, I'll be in Brooklyn, Sunday, May 22nd. Please text me for the flyer or snatch it off on my social network pages. Hope to see y'all there. Please spread the word. All right, my, my man. Uh, caller at 0137-0137. Did you have a, a question for Dr. Umar? Uh, caller at 0137-0137. Did you have a question or are you just listening? No, I have a question. I definitely have a question. Okay. Um, for Dr. Umar Johnson, uh, peace to you, brother, first of all. Peace, beloved. Um, the question I have is that um, do you have a plan B in case this this plan for this school doesn't go through? And also, how do you feel about the media um, far as us not having a media outlet? I personally feel that um, you have enough funds right now as to where maybe you should pursue that goal of, of awakening the people through um, a, a, a media, a, a pro-black media, because that's something that we don't have. Um, far as the school thing, I'm going to be real with you. I, I, I personally have not donated because um, I looked at it from a, a business perspective, and I didn't see certain things um, really add up on that. But if you, if, you, if you have deep enough pockets right now, have you thought about pursuing the media? Because, brother, we don't, we don't have that, and we have a whole lot of schools and ideas for schools. Okay. Uh, first of all, uh, the people who donated to the FDMG Academy fundraiser donated for the FDMG Academy fundraiser. Those monies have been entrusted to me for the purposes of building up a school. I cannot, in good conscience, or even in good business sense, take money that has come to me for purpose A and decide that I'm going to use it for purpose B. That is dishonest, and that is not good uh, business integrity, so I'm not going to do that. Furthermore, I consider the school to be more important than the media network. I totally agree with you. Totally agree with you. We need it. But even with a media system, nothing is going to change with you giving black people accurate information about their reality when they still hate each other and can't sit down at a table to organize and do something about their reality. The psychological revolution must precede every other revolution. It must precede the informational revolution. It must precede the cultural revolution. It must precede the economic revolution. It must precede the community revolution because the mind is the first frontier. And if you do not change the way black people think, you change nothing about black people. So I do agree with you. It is critical that we create that network, but it is not more critical than education. As far as you not donating, that is your right. And I don't take an issue with that. As far as your reasoning for not donating, I don't agree with that. There's nothing to add up when someone is trying to raise $2 million to purchase a campus that costs $2 million. If we have $600,000, that's not $2 million. So there's nothing to add up except the money we have 
And once we get the $2 million, we will buy the school. Or if I see something that is better or uh, comparable to that school, I will then take the money and do that. The biggest problem I have, not with you, my brother, because you have been respectful in your disagreement, but the biggest problem I have with a lot of Dr. Umar haters, because it's only the haters who are trying to attack the fundraiser because they're jealous that they can't raise that type of money. Many of the other scholars in the conscious community, they got GoFundMe pages, and you can go to their GoFundMe page and see that I raised more money than all of them put together. So it's a jealousy and an ego thing. But the interesting thing about it is is nothing complicated about the fundraiser. From the beginning, we've stated what we wanted to do. We wanted to raise $4 million to buy the school and also give us the money to renovate the school. And then we reduced that to $2 million to just acquire the school and then at some future time raise the money necessary for the renovation. So it's a very cut-forward thing. There's nothing uh, complicated about it. If you say you need to raise $500 to uh, buy a car to get to work and you only got $300 and somebody comes and says, well, what you doing with the $300 we gave you? Well, I told y'all I need five. But well, we need to see where the money at that the 300 we gave you. Well, that's real simple. That's real simple. The money is sitting in the FDMG Academy school account. And what is even more interesting is when I get a donation, even when you donate to GoFundMe, and you could probably call GoFundMe and ask, they could probably tell you this. When y'all transfer the funds out of the account to Dr. Umar Johnson, can you please tell me, if the money goes into Dr. Umar Johnson's account, or if the money goes into an FDMG Academy account. It's real simple. If I'm taking a check that says FDMG and putting it in my bank account, that's fraud. You go to jail for that shit. And what's more interesting than that, do you really think, being the foremost scholar on the planet right now, being the most requested scholar in the world right now, do you really think the IRS and the CIA and the FBI, who probably watching every second of my damn life, are going to let me take money out of the school account and put it in mine or take money out of a GoFundMe account or a check on money order that clearly says FDMG and put it in my account? You think they're going to let me do that shit without no consequences? I mean, it's real simple. Has he ever made a withdrawal from the fundraiser? Hell no. When I needed to get a lawyer to represent my bid to the auction for St. Paul's College, did that money come out of the fundraiser money? Nope. Guess where that money came from? My damn pocket. When I went down to St. Paul's to go down there and meet with the president and, and, and pay my video team to produce that documentary, did that come out of the fundraiser money? Hell no. When I travel the country now looking at different schools and talking to lawyers and real estaters and paying people to come and give me assessments on what it would cost if I buy this building to fix it up, does any of that come out of the fundraiser? Nope. That comes out of the damn lecture money. I'm not no damn con, man. I know that there's a need for checks and balances, and I have all of them. I have all the checks and all the balances. I got the name of every donor and their address and what they donated. Because when we open up the school, the first thing I'm going to do is pay homage and respect to everybody who cared enough about our children to make a donation. But, again, people who don't want to help have a right not to help. I can't worry about that. But I do know one thing. We're going to get that damn school. Like I said, and in the question of if 
It's only a question of when and where. I can show you better than I can tell you. I have I have one more statement if I'm allowed. And I definitely um, Do you have a question, sir? Because I don't we don't really have time for a lot of speechifying. I said oh, okay, that before. Yeah. Okay, I, I do have another question for the brother. Um in the case of raising the money for the school, um, two million dollars, let's say right now you was to get it tonight from some source, you have the two million dollars. Um, how do you how do you equate once you have the money for the school, the the, the maintaining of the school, the the teachers, the um the, 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 the ground, I mean, I know a small business, a small, a, let's say a small prison, for instance, they may spend $50,000 on toilet paper for the year. So it's like, toilet, there's, okay. a lot of things, there's a lot of things as to where you're going to need more money to maintain the place and keep it running. Okay. Okay. I'm going to talk now as a principal, which I am. Okay. So I've ran school buildings before. Tissue don't cost $50,000 at no school. Okay. Now, let me ask you a question, answer your question because I think it was a good question. I do think it was a good question. When you raise $2 million for St. Paul's College, the $2 million ain't going to St. Paul's College. The $2 million is going into the bank. And then you're going to take out a financing for St. Paul's College that allows you to pay the bank the mortgage for the school, which they can clearly see you can pay because you got enough money in the bank to buy the school. By financing the school, your $2 million is equity and wealth that you can use to operate your school. You don't raise $2 million and turn it over to the school where you're going to have renovations, teachers to pay, insurance, transportation needs, stock information, and everything else. You don't operate like that. You put the money into the bank and you finance the school. That way they get the bank gets their monthly mortgage and you still got $2 million to operate your school. Wow, look how simple that was. Now, when we get St. Paul's College or whatever school you get, you don't operate at maximum capacity. When I met with the principal down at St. Paul's, the president, we talked about this. We walked through the buildings and he said, you know what, Doc, if you're going to operate one building, let this be the school building and open up one dorm, one building and one dorm. The other buildings will not be up and running until we can afford to bring them online. I can guarantee you, being an educator as long as I have, haven't been a principal, okay, and somebody of common sense who didn't just think of this idea yesterday, the whole thing is well thought out. But let me go deeper, and this is not for you, but in general. It's amazing how we put so much time and thought into criticizing and deciding why we shouldn't support someone who has such a critical goal as educating our children, but we don't put that type of thought into where we put our money at. We give the Chinese money every damn day. We don't ask them shit about where they get that dirty chicken or dirty rice. We give Arabs money every day, but we don't ask them where they got the gas that we put into their car. We give Koreans money every day, but we don't ask them where they got the damn weed and the perm. We give Nike and Adidas money every day, but we don't ask them where they actually uh, got their shoes manufactured from. We buy cars and drive them every day, and we don't ask them where the materials came from. So it's amazing how we can give our money to all these non-Africans and don't ask for shit related to accountability. But when the foremost school psychologist in our community says he's going to open up a school for black children, we got a million and one questions before we even give a dollar. 
how in the hell do you justify not giving the FDMG Academy a single damn donation when you donate the white kids every day? You donate the Chinese kids every day. You donate the Arab and East Indian kids every day when you support their racist parents' businesses. But I can't get a donation because you can't understand how the school is functioning. Come on, black people. Are you serious? Get a uh, caller in Florida, Black Parent. He was with us last week, 1078-1078. Did you have a question for Dr. Umar? Um, all our questions are got answered. We actually wanted to know, are you coming to Miami, uh, Dr. Johnson? Uh, I was in Miami last year, 2015. I am going to come back. Uh, I was trying to hit another section of the what I hadn't been to. I hadn't been to jacksonville in like four years i hadn't been to tampa at all hadn't been to an orlando in about three or four years since i was just in miami i wanted to spread the love somewhere else never been to daytona beach if you got any connections in another section of the state that i've never been to please let me know and what i can try to do because i want to make when i come to florida i want to try to make it a three-city tour so maybe a Thursday, Friday, and a Sunday, or a Friday, Saturday, and a Sunday, or something like that. But I don't want the trip to be Miami only, or Fort Lauderdale only, or West Palm only, because they've already had it. We need to add something in there. Jacksonville, Tampa, Daytona, Tallahassee. We need to get another city in there with it, if y'all can help me with that. All right. Uh, thanks a lot. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Uh, Roz, did you have a question for Dr. Umar? You should be with us. Uh, yes, greetings to you, Gus, and um, greetings to you, Dr. Johnson. It's an honor to hear you speak tonight. Um, I have one question for you. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I had a meeting at my job. I work at a health insurance company, and uh, the discussion came up that for transgender uh, members, they are only allowed to um, the, well, the insurance, com the insurance company will only pay for the surgery if they go to a psychiatrist and are diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Now, that's also known as gender identity disorder, um, where a person uh, feels in their mind that they're opposite to the sex that they were born. So um, I actually looked that up, and it was described as uh, a disorder, and they said that it's not a mental illness. Then I looked up the definition for disorder, and it says a physical or mental condition that is not normal or healthy. And I thought to myself, this is pretty much rhetorical ethics because they're saying that you're not either physically or mentally healthy if you have a disorder, but yet they say that gender dysphoria is not a mental illness. So I just wanted you to kind of speak to that um, as a psychologist and the fact that you've spoken about um, transgender issues and, and um, homosexuality previously. Thank you so much um, for taking my call. Uh, no problem. Good question. All this goes back to the origin of the declassification of homosexuality as a mental illness. Homosexuality was a mental illness for all of American history up until 1974. Uh, every state, almost every state, had laws that punished people who practice homosexuality inside of it, nearly every state. Okay. So this whole gay being normal is a very new thing in American society. And it's still not accepted in African society. Very few places in Africa you go to, and I've been all over the continent, where you find black folks who accept this way of life. There is homosexuality there. Don't get me wrong. 
but it is not accepted as a way of culture as it is here. The reason they declassified homosexuality is because they wanted to use it as a new minority issue that could replace the black agenda as the primary non-white issue in the country. Remember, one of the primary strategies of white supremacy is to never allow the black agenda to be the number one issue of our time. Dr. King did an excellent job with the protesting and the marching and the nonviolent strategy that forced America, the world, and the media to pay attention to the black agenda. Dr. King was a supreme strategist. I still don't think people understand how strategically wise and courageous he was. After they killed Dr. King, they said, we can never let that shit happen again. Black people can never be the primary non-white issue in the country or the primary minority issue. We got to find something else. So they grabbed homosexuality. Homosexuality cannot be a civil right if it is a mental illness. Homosexuality cannot be a civil right if it is a mental illness. Homosexuality cannot be a civil right if it is a mental illness. So they had to declassify it. That's when they came up with gender identity disorder. Now, check this out. This is how they remixed it. Check out the remix. The remix is this. When it was homosexuality, having sex with somebody of the opposite sex was a disease. It was a disorder. But when they rewrote it with gender identity disorder, change the name, they rewrote the definition. So now gender identity disorder was not being gay. It was having a problem being gay. Look at the difference now. Before, being gay was a problem. After they declassified it, being gay was no longer a mental order, a mental disorder. But having a problem that you were gay was the mental disorder. You only get diagnosed with gender identity disorder if you have a problem with your homosexuality, if you have a problem with your lesbianism. If you gay and happy, you ain't disordered. If you lesbian and proud, you ain't disordered. It is only those who are uncomfortable, who in some way their life is being disadvantaged by their homosexuality and lesbianism. Why would that be odd for black folks? You know why that'd be odd? Because in our culture, Anything you do that does not sit well with your spirit, you should not be doing. In other words, the fact that it is uneasy is a sign that something is wrong with the behavior. We always believe in intuitive reference. We always reference things with our intuition. We say, that don't feel right. I'm not going to do it. That don't sound right. I'm not going to do it. So if a black kid is questioning his identity, why is that a disease? That's healthy that he's questioning his homosexuality. It's healthy that she's questioning her lesbian because that's not their true identity. But, of course, white supremacy turns upside, upright, and upright, upside down. So when you have a problem being gay, then that's a problem. So therapy, what's the purpose of therapy then? The purpose of therapy is, therapy is to help you accept your homosexuality and your lesbianism, which is why I tell black parents you better be careful who you take your child to if the issue is homosexual thoughts. If your daughter is having lesbian thoughts and you take them to a traditional psychoanalyst, psychotherapist, trained in these white universities, they're not going to make that child question if this is who they really are. They're going to say, well, this is who you really are. You was born this way. You need to learn how to accept this. Because Sigmund Freud said homosexual male activity was a natural part of black boy development. Carl Jung said the same thing. 
Anna Freud said the same thing. Alfred Adler said the same thing. Most of the fathers of white psychology felt homosexuality was a natural part of adolescent male culture. How in the hell can you take your child to one of them? And that was getting worse. What did I prophesy 10 years ago? Everything I said, everything I said, I said that in the next 20 years, pedophilia will be normal behavior. People said I was crazy. Do you know right now that the North American Association of Man and Boy Love, NAMBLA, is now getting help from prominent psychologists and psychiatrists in the American Psychiatric and the American Psychological Association? There was just an article that came out the other day, one of the top psychologists in the country, saying that a man being attracted to a child should not be considered mentally ill. I'm telling you, they're working on it, y'all. Remember, there was people who said homosexuality would never be normal. There was people who said homosexuality would never be considered normal. Look at it now. It's the main civil right in the damn country. Black folks don't even count no more unless they're gay. They're about to do the same thing with pedophilia. Listen to me. In your lifetime, pedophilia will become a normal behavior, no more punishable by law. I promise you that. Appreciate that, Roz. Uh, female caller in New York. Female caller in New York. Did you have a question for Dr. Umar? You should be with us. Female caller in New York, are you with us? Or are you uh, just listening in? I don't know if you muted your line or not. Not hearing you. I'll check uh, one more time, see if it's, uh, I don't know if it's your line or your microphone issue or what have you. Female caller in New York, are you with us? Okay, not hearing anything. If you're just listening in, that is fine. Uh, but not hearing anything uh, from your line, uh, we'll just... Move on to our next caller, uh, victim, victim of racism, I presume. Did you have a question for Dr. Umar? Your line should be open. Yeah, good evening to everyone. Um, how you doing, Dr. Umar? Peace, my brother. I would just like to ask you, I know you're, uh, you're a uh, Pan-Africanist, um, and uh, you've been over to Africa several times. Uh, I just wanted to know with the expansion of, you know, white supremacy and the refinement of white supremacy that's going on now and uh of course white supremacy exists everywhere do you see any type of it of an advantage of a uh you know black american actually moving and, and living in africa uh particularly west africa uh just based off your experience from being out there do you see any uh advantages to moving out there and and what uh i guess the disadvantages would you see to uh, relocating and actually uh, moving out to uh, Africa or West Africa. Thank you. Let me preface my comments by saying that we are in the midst right now of the second great black migration. The first great black migration was from the south to the north. The second great migration is from the western hemisphere into the eastern hemisphere. More blacks are going to Africa to live permanently than ever before. In fact, so many of our elders are retiring to Africa that many of the 401k pension plans now include a stipulation that you can only receive your retirement payout if you are residing in America. Now, are there benefits? Of course. Your children growing up around other African children learning their culture and language, 
black women having the opportunity to marry black men who were raised as real African men, black women, excuse me, black men being able to marry African women who were raised as real African women, not masculinized by the American power structure. Of course there's a benefit. Being able to open a business in a black city and not have to compete with racist white folk, being able to build a house from the ground at nearly uh, less than half of the amount you would pay to buy a house already used in America? No question, my brother. No question. Ain't nothing but benefits. In fact, I can't think of a single detriment for somebody to relocate to Africa except the need to come back and forth to, you know, see after your relatives who may not be as inclined to reconnect to their roots. In fact, with the repatriation project that I'm working on, we, we want to settle communities, new African communities in different countries around in Africa so we can get affiliated and study the economics and see how we can break into it. Come on now. Our ancestors did it in Liberia. They did it in Sierra Leone. If they can leave America in the 1700s, if they can leave America in the 1800s and go over there and build, imagine what we can do now. We can lock it down. If a hundred of us went to Africa, organized, it ain't got to be a hundred. I'm going to take that back. I'm going to take that back. If ten of us went to Africa with a sum total of $100,000, I'm telling you, we could revolutionize the city that we live in in Africa. We could put our people to work. We can build schools. And that's why, brothers and sisters, when we talk about the FDMG, one of the things I'm considering is putting that school in Africa. One of the things I'm considering is putting that school in the Caribbean. Oh, yes, I am thinking about it. Oh, yes, I am thinking about it. I'm looking at all the Caribbean islands and seeing you know, which one I might do this. I'm looking at Ghana. I'm going to be speaking with the Secretary of Education in Ghana. Oh, we're going to get out of school. And don't get me wrong. I want the first one to be here because most of the donations come from here. I know most of our parents are not going to be comfortable sending their children to Africa, but I'm not shutting the door on that opportunity. We're about to have a million dollars soon. A million dollars. Could you imagine if 10 of us, 20 of us went there with that million dollars? to build a school and educating African kids and then got our African-American kids coming, our African-Canadian, African-Caribbean, African-British. Man, please, that's a beautiful sight. It's a beautiful sight, and it is one that I'm actively investigating. See, I can't share with y'all everything because I got too many haters who are trying to destroy my work. And I learned the hard way that you can't be totally transparent. Those of y'all who follow my career, you know that I've been 100% transparent about everything. Straight see-through. But with the attacks on my school project, I had to start backing up because these dirty haters was contacting St. Paul's College, making trouble for me. They was contacting other institutions, making trouble for me. So I can't tell you I'm up to this. I'm up to this because I got homosexuals, lesbians, jealous, and envious Negroes in the conscious community who will do anything to destroy my work so I can no longer be as transparent. I got to keep my cards close to me until I'm ready to reveal it. Appreciate that, victim. Um, just checking one more time to make sure I didn't miss her call. The uh, female caller in New York, uh, did you have a question or are you just listening in? Yeah, 
We're still not uh, hearing anything uh, on your line. Just want to double check to make sure we didn't miss you. If you had a question uh, for Dr. Umar, uh, the caller at eight one. Oh, okay. There we are. Can yes, ma yes, ma'am. Oh, great. I'm I'm having a issue with my audio. I have this new connection, so I'm glad I was able to get through. Okay, I emailed you the question just in case I couldn't get through, but since I'm here, oh, greetings, Dr. Johnson. It's an honor to speak with you. I just wanted to let you know that I did donate to your school, and I also sent you my resume. <laughs> so, um, Thank you. I, I live in New York, and, um, you know, I, I don't know where you're going to open your school. I don't know, you know, when or, or what area it is, but I just let you know that I'm available. Even if it's remotely, I will travel even to help out on the weekends because I think that this is really, really critical. And, um, necessary groundbreaking and historical and all that other stuff what you're doing it's just it's just really really um innovative but my question is regarding the developmentally disabled for 20 years i worked um in that area i recently uh semi-retired and um i went to a fundraiser and it was a very well-known organization uh that advocates for the developmentally disabled uh building a fundraiser through an organization, a different organization. It turned out to be a network marketing thing where you had these white people going into uh, this indigenous country and um, taking some berry and some fruit and letting these um, parents of these autistic children, mostly black, I call them, I can say all black, trying to tell them that they should buy this product because this um, specific, uh, you know, it's like they were selling some kind of snake oil. And um, I felt really bad for these um, black parents who had these autistic children who were at their wit's end who would try anything, which leads me to my question regarding um, cannabis. I saw also that there's some talk about giving developmentally disabled and autistic children cannabis um, to alleviate their symptoms, while there's also some talk of caregivers um, having uh, medical marijuana to alleviate their stresses. I was wondering if you think that that idea, because we know when people talk about things, you know, it always comes to pass, especially when it comes to them being high. So I was just wondering if you thought that this would trickle down to the black community and um, what effect it would have. That's all I had. I'll meet my line. Thanks, sir. Thank you, sister. And I hope to see you in Brooklyn on Sunday, May 22nd at the Philadelphia Universal Church of Brotherhood, 530 Eastern Parkway. Excellent question. I do not agree that medical marijuana use is going to assist autism. Autism is a neurological impairment that produces serious deficits in spoken and unspoken communication and language. If a child has a problem with social communication, if a child has a problem with nonverbal communication, if a child has a problem with verbal communication, how in the hell is smoking a joint going to ease his autism? Autism is not an emotion. Autism is a communications impairment. If you say giving, giving marijuana to depressed people, I can say, okay, it's going to calm them down. But autism kids are not ADHD kids, even though ADHD don't exist in my world, but autism kids are not hyper. So the side effect of THC the active ingredient in marijuana sedates the central nervous system. It calms you down. Autistic kids are not necessarily hyper. So giving them marijuana, I don't know what 
purpose that serves under the sun. I don't, I, I don't agree with that at all. I don't agree with giving kids marijuana at all. You know why? Because the central nervous system is still developing. Remember, our brains don't stop growing until we're 30 years old. Okay? So the child needs their full cognitive function. They need their full blood pressure. You give a developing brain marijuana, you're working against the blood flow. You're working against cognitive development. You're working against cognitive alertness. I really see some very serious developmental disorders coming about giving children marijuana. I definitely don't agree with that. And as I said earlier on the call, most of our children are going to develop tolerance to the drug like adults do, and they're going to start dipping it with angel dust, PCP, and wet, and they're going to end up going through what a lot of our Camden babies are going through across the bridge in New Jersey, and that is irreversible, paranoid, psychotic schizophrenia as a result of these marijuana sticks that's been dipped with harder substances. Ain't nothing good going to come out of giving weed to our babies. Thank you. I have one more question. Um, with regard to the DSM, the recent, well, I think it was last year, maybe two years ago, it was updated again. Um, uh-huh. there, was, yeah, there was some, uh, the language in there with regard to some uh, things that were new, um, I'm not too, I, 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 don't, I wrote them down at the time, but I don't have it in front of me. But it seems to be a lot of um, things, uh, 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 terms like Explosive disorders, and um, it just seemed when I read them, it seemed to be um, issues that uh, children who have ADHD or, uh, you know, like you say, our boys suffer from ain't no daddy at home syndrome. It, it seemed to be um, those things and those symptoms and those outbursts and those behaviors that our boys suffer from. So I'm wondering what your Take is on these new updates to the DSM, and it's really um, kind of like bringing the hammer down even some more on our children. And that's all I had. I'll mute my line. Thank you for taking my question. Uh, yes, ma'am. The DSM-5 did come with some changes. Uh, there's a few extra disorders in there. It's a very large book, you know, about 400 disorders long. But there's, a, uh, you know, a lot of changes that come. Uh, some of the stuff that's relevant is they got rid of Asperger's disorder and they simply included Asperger's in with autism as one single disorder because Asperger's is on the autism spectrum, and it was debate as to whether it should be separate. They made it easier to diagnose children with ADHD. It's much easier to diagnose kids with ADHD. It's much easier to almost diagnose any of the disruptive behavior disorders in children. So those are some of the major things. Also keep in mind when the DSM-5 first came out, there was a homosexual mistake in the DSM. When the first copy came out, they had homosexuality listed as a sexual orientation. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, not homosexuality. Pedophilia. When the first printing of the DSM-5 came out, a white psychologist blew the whistle. A white psychologist blew the whistle and said they have listed pedophilia as a sexual orientation and not as a mental disorder. And the APA immediately apologized for the oversight and the typo, and they rapidly changed it. You and I know that was not an oversight, and that was not a typo. They were hoping that people would not realize what they did. I'm telling you, sex with children will be normal and accepted behavior in the next 20 years. In fact, I would argue to some extent it's accepted behavior now. Why do I say that? 
because in many states, like in Pennsylvania, okay, a 16-year-old child is at the age of sexual majority. It is no longer 18. In Pennsylvania, a 16-year-old child can have sex with a grown man, and it is not statutory rape. That is pedophilia. If a man goes out here and has sex with a 16-year-old, my daughter is 14. If a man goes out here and has sex with a 16-year-old child, how is that not pedophilia? It's not no more. So pedophilia is already normal. It's already normal. It's already normal. Uh, 15, if the, if the girl is 15, then the boy has to be four years older than him, than, than her. If the boy is not four years older than her, then it's not pedophilia. Well, I got a problem with that because if, you know, my 14 or 15-year-old daughter is out here having sex with an 18-year-old boy, you know, I might consider him to be too old for her. To me, that might be pedophilia, but it's not to the law. I'm going to tell you how they're going to do this. They're not going to do it in one swoop. They're going to reduce the age of sexual consent a little bit more. This is what they're going to do. Right now, it's 16, right? In the next two years, it'll probably be 14. In the next two years, sexual majority will be 14. Your 14-year-old will not be able, you will not be able to charge anybody with statutory rape having sex with your 14-year-old, and then they're going to drop it to 12. I know what they're going to do. All they're going to do is reduce the age of majority in order to get pedophilia legalized. We had, uh, let's see, I think about five folks left on the line. Uh, did you have time for other questions? I know you keep a full schedule. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, the person that dialed in, uh, last four digits, uh, 8113, 8113. Did you have a question for Dr. Umar? Good evening. Um, can you hear me okay? Yes, ma'am. Um, good evening, Dr. Umar. Good evening. I have a question regarding um, funding for FDMG Academy. I was wondering if um, you would consider um, accepting donations from um, an NGO organization. If the NGO organization is a pan-Africanist or race-first organization, I would. Of course, I would need to see what the purpose of the NGO is as well as, you know, the principles and objectives that they stand for, but in principle, I'm not opposed to it. It just depends on what they're all about. I would just, I wouldn't want it to be inconsistent with what we stand for. I see. Okay. Um, that would be all. Thank you very much. Right on. Uh, person who called in from a blocked number. Uh, did you have a question for Dr. Umar? Uh, yes. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, yeah, hello, Dr. Umar. I always love it when you're on the program. Um, I, I, don't, I, I don't think you're on often enough. But I want to ask you a question. Um, with the country being, it seems like the whole country is being gentrified now, and they're pushing black people out and away. Do you, do you think that they're really trying to kill all of us off? I mean, just actually exterminate us as a people, and also with the um, with the dollar uh, falling, you know the 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 currency, you know <laughs> falling. Do you think that they're using the black people in prisons as the new form of currency, like they did back in chattel slavery? I hope that's not yes. a silly question. 
No, that's not a silly question. They are using prisoners as currency. Uh, mass incarceration is the new slavery. It, the, 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 the prison is a slave ship. It just doesn't sit on water. It sits on land. The exact same principles that applied in slavery applied in prison. In fact, uh, when slavery ended, all they did was redirect the former slaves into jail with the vagrancy laws. So mass incarceration is an extension of slavery. It is an extension of slavery. There were no large-scale federal prison systems in America. There wasn't even large-scale state prison systems in America. All that came after slavery. And they filled, us, filled up the prisons with us through vagrancy laws. Not having a job, you go to jail. Not having a job, you could go to jail for not having a job. Oh, yes. You could be hired out on a chain gang for not having a job. Oh, without question. If you steal something, you go to jail. You don't be in, in the house at a certain time. You go to jail. You see, that's why when people say that, you know, black men need to stop selling dope and they'll stop going to jail. Well, guess what? Black men ain't got to sell another piece of crack in their life, and they will still go to jail. You know why? Because incarceration is a function of crime times focus. In other words, whatever they want to focus upon, they can turn that into a crime. Look at all the people who went to jail for marijuana. Now marijuana legal. Ain't that some shit? All the people went to jail for weed. Now weed legal. Because it's not about doing something wrong. It's about breaking the law. And the law that you break it may not have absolutely nothing to do with doing anything wrong. I know a brother who went to jail for five years for selling bootleg DVDs. He went to jail for five years for selling bootleg DVDs. So they will find anything to put you away. In fact, the new jail contracts with the government say what? You have to guarantee us 70% occupancy. Some prisons say you got to guarantee us 90% occupancy. Some say 100% occupancy. How the hell do you guarantee prisoners? You don't know how many people are going to break the law. How do you guarantee prisoners? Because you will manufacture laws that target black folks. That's why child support is so critical. When they made child not paying your child support a crime, oh, my goodness. To be honest with you, I think child support is catching up with drug sales for fastest growing reasons for black male incarceration. I really do. Because when I go speak in a prison, I'm not speaking to convicted drug dealers. I'm speaking to brothers who are only there because they couldn't find a job to pay their child support. Child support is the new crime of choice by the American power structure. It ain't dope dealing no more. It's child support court. We need to be careful. Okay. Um, also, uh, the other part of the question I ask you, about do you think that they're uh, trying to eliminate Oh, us? yes. Oh, they definitely exterminated us. Oh, no question. In fact, I'm going to make another prediction. I'm going to make another prediction. Within 10 years, Spanish will be a required language taught in school. Let me say that one more time. Within 10 years, Spanish will be a required language taught in America's public school. Let me say it one more time. Spanish will be a required language. You know why? Because they are being brought in to replace us, Mexicans and Latinos. you damn right they're getting rid of you. They got a homosexuality, so you're not having kids. They got abortion, so you're not birthing kids. They got black-on-black crime, so you be 
killed before you can have a child. They got mass incarceration where you spend most of your adult childbearing years so you cannot impregnate a woman or get pregnant by a male. Look at all the strategies they have to hold the black population in check. Oh, without question. They're trying to get us to zero population growth, my queen. And zero population growth is real simple. We want to get to a point where more black people die than are born every year. Zero population growth. I'm going to say it again. They want to get us to a point where more black people die than are born every year. Now, here's the kicker. The kicker is they're not going to tell you when you get there. They are not going to announce that black people are at zero population growth. They're just simply going to keep it steady and intensify it until we wake up 50 years from now and say, damn, I don't be seeing too many more black folks. And you know what they're going to do with the rest of you? Use you for medical research monkeys, put you in the military where you can go die, or put you in concentration camps and just kill you off slowly with the latest form of Ebola or uh, Zika virus. This is real. This is not a game. This is not a conspiracy. This is an extermination. Okay. Thank you so much, brother. Thank you, beautiful. Uh, Don't forget, black family, Birmingham, and I know we got a few more gusts, but just to reiterate, Birmingham, Alabama, April 30th with David Banner, sold out. Washington, D.C., Howard University, Ujamashule, Blackburn Center, Sunday, May 1st, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Saturday, May 7th, Oakland, California, Thursday, May 12th, Memphis, Tennessee, Thursday, excuse me, Saturday, May 14th for Memphis, Greenville, South Carolina, Thursday, May 19th, Brooklyn, New York, Sunday, May the 22nd, Baltimore, Maryland, National Independent Black Parent Association Conference, the 27th through the 29th. I will definitely get that registration up tomorrow, family. I apologize. The registration for the Black Parent Conference in Baltimore, and I hope all of y'all come because all of y'all know y'all need to help us organize your parents in your city. This is a national conference. It is for everybody. You need to get there. 27th, 28th, and 29th. Registration will be up tomorrow. If you can't make the conference and you just want to come to the Baltimore lecture, that is already up on Eventbrite. Okay, Savannah, Georgia, June the 2nd. The Black Boy and Girl, Black Boy and Girl College Tour, June 30th to July 14th. You can register for it right now on Eventbrite, Prince of Panafricanism.eventbrite.com. And, of course, our Africa Tour, Senegal and South Africa, July 26th to August 9th. That should be up soon as well, Prince of Panafricanism.eventbrite.com. Linked on the Facebook. Uh, for those of you, if you follow on Facebook, the Event Tribe uh, site, you can get all of Dr. Umar's information linked right there. Click the link, you'll see all of his, his information. Uh, the caller at 2842-2842. Did you have a question for Dr. Umar? You should be with us. Hello, greetings, Gus, and greetings, Dr. Umar. Greetings. Um, Dr. Umar, Question. Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you for all your work. I'm an avid follower. I've donated to the school, so I believe in the mission. Um, what do you think is the correlation between the escalating homosexuality, particularly with our youth, um, hip-hop music, cannabis, and lead and other types of chemicals in our food and drinking water? Okay. I believe that chemicals and toxins can cause a feminization of the physical body. I do believe that estrogen, potentially lead, 
other chemicals. We do know that they're putting estrogen in many of the psychiatric medications. I do believe that that can effeminize the human body, which means you can develop breasts, you know, uh, flabby buttocks, uh, hips, uh, an emasculated voice, any type of female trait. It can strip you of your testosterone and boost up your estrogen. However, I do not believe that any chemical can induce a man to become sexually attracted to another man. I do not believe any chemical can induce a woman to become sexually attracted to another woman. That is psychology, not biology. And for me, I disagree with some of our scholars who believe that homosexuality can be induced with chemicals. I don't agree with that. Feminization can be induced with chemicals, but actual sexual attraction to the opposite sex, um, I've never seen a case of that. Uh, Every homosexual that I've ever met or worked with or done therapy with, I was able to trace the etiology of the homosexuality to something other than chemicals. I do not think a glass of soy milk is going to want you. It was going to make a boy want to have sex with a man. Thank you very much. I will meet in the line. Thank you, Gus. Thank you, Dr. Umar. Keep up the good work, brother. One hundred percent. Thank you, my brother. For sure. Uh, caller at four zero two eight four zero two eight. Did you have a question for Dr. Umar? Uh, yes, sir. Um, hello, Dr. Umar. Hello, Gus. Please, Queen. Um, I have a question um, about accountab- accountability and how we factor in white supremacy. Uh, for example, earlier you were talking um, about the crime uh, with our children and how they're going wild. Uh, it seems like there have been organizations and on a grassroots level that have tried to attack this, but um, it seems like they're unaware um, sometimes of how white supremacy uh, induces or even incites some of that violence. Uh, I only ask this because I think I heard Ava Muhammad of the Nation of Islam uh, raise a question that has made me think about um, she said, how do you know that a lot of this crime in Chicago is not being, uh, done by the police? And so, um, if you could address that, um, I had another question, but I didn't know how, if, if I could ask it now, or do you want me to wait until you answer the question? The first question. Let me answer that one first. I do believe that the police have a secondary function in the black community as a mercenary army of the state whose primary responsibility is population reduction. I do believe that the police are not only instigating black-on-black crime in our major cities. I do believe that they're actually carrying out some of the executions themselves. I believe a lot of the unsolved murders, particularly those that take place late at night with no witnesses, are definitely being carried out by the police. They are a mercenary army. I have no doubt about it, but I'm not certain that they are alone. I believe that there are other white mercenary armies that are being hired to come into black cities and systematically exterminate the population and blame it on black on black crime. Unsolved murders are very suspicious to me. Unsolved murders are extremely suspicious to me, especially when placed in the context of the ever increasing underground market for black organs. Uh, All these young black males are dying as young as they are. Do you really think that they are being put in the ground with a healthy heart 
Do you really think they're being put in the ground with their kidney, their spleen, their liver? Not at all. They are taking those organs out of their bodies and selling them to folks who can afford to pay for them. Keep in mind, the only thing that you need to survive that cannot be produced is a organ. If you need a human organ, you have to steal it. And the only way you can take it is to kill the person that's carrying it. Remember, we are the mothers and fathers of civilization, so our organs are almost compatible with anyone because they are all descendants, hybrids of who we are. So we have to look at that from the human trafficking standpoint. Healthy black males, hundreds of them a year. Hundreds of Look at that now. Look at that. Hundreds of them a year. You really think white folks sitting around needing organs are not cashing in on that? You really think that the funeral homes and the undertakers and the autopsy folks, they not snatching them organs out? Ain't like you're going to look inside the body of your deceased relative. You ain't going inside that body to see if them organs are in there. I'm telling you they're taking them out. Dick Gregory said when they found Trayvon Martin, Trayvon organs was out of his body. And, so, and they also said that's one of the reasons why they didn't even report that Trayvon was missing or that they had his body for a long time because they needed to get the organs out. Or the brother who was found down in the South who was murdered and his whole body was stuffed with trash with a, a newspaper. Kendrick Johnson. Which is why I say we need to think twice about being an organ donor. If you want to be an organ donor, you don't need to put that on your license. Put it in your living will. If I die and a relative or friend or member of my race needs my organs when I die, they can have them. But under no circumstances do you give my organs to my oppressor. Under no circumstances. You ever notice how soon when your relatives go into the hospital, they want you to sign them organ donor forms before they even did? Mm-hmm. Will you please sign this just in case? Why the fuck I want, excuse my friend. Why well, I want to sign something just in case? I'm hoping that they make it. And you want me to sign a paper talking about just in case. How about you come back to me if they don't make it? But guess what? If you sign them papers, they're going to make sure they don't make it because somebody else needs their heart. They don't care about us. And the problem with black folk is we still don't understand the white psyche. Even though we've been the greatest victims of white supremacy, we don't understand white supremacy. Black folk are so, I would say black people have a third grade understanding of white supremacy. Some of us have an eighth grade understanding of white supremacy. Very few of us, like a Dr. Francis Cress Wilson, a newly fuller, have a 12th grade understanding of white supremacy. The average black person has a third grade understanding of white supremacy. We do not get it. We don't get it. And the rules are simple. Rule number one, white people do not share power with black folks. If you just understand that rule, you'll be all right. That's the biggest rule we don't get. That's why black folks still looking for integration. Equality. Equality means we're going to power share. Equality means we're going to decision share. Equality means we're going to institutionally share. Equality means we're going to share everything. White supremacy and equality are oxymorons. You can't have equality in white supremacy. It don't make sense. They don't share power with black folk. Rule number two, all white people are racist. I hope y'all listening. All white people are racist. But what do you mean, Dr. Umar? I got white friends, white cousins, white wife, white grandma. They never did me wrong. They don't have to to do you wrong because there never came an opportunity where they needed to do you wrong. See, that's what black people messed up. Y'all know white folks who never did nothing to you. We all, I know white folks who never did nothing to me because the opportunity never required them to. Y'all gotta understand this. Let's say you're living with a thief. They steal from people. 
but you take care of that piece, you give them enough money, you feed them, you cook. They don't have a need to steal. But if they felt they were missing something, they would steal. You see, so what happens is white folk can treat you good as you want them to until something you do or something their community requires for demands systematic discrimination against you. That's when you realize that they were racist all along. White people have two personalities, their individual personalities and their collective consciousness. And the collective consciousness of white folks is operated on by racists. I need y'all to get that. The collective consciousness of white folk that they all share in common is rooted in racism. They personal, they personality, they personal consciousness. You know, that's how you doing, girl? Let's go eat. Let's go get something to drink. Sarah having a birthday party. Why don't you bring Shaquita on over? That's the personal consciousness. But guess what? When your daughter gets to the white daughter's party, right, and the mother loses her pocketbook, check it out now. She invited you there. But her pocketbook going missing. And all her white girlfriends are there. Guess what's going to happen? That personal consciousness is going to be overtaken by the collective consciousness. And the same white woman who invited you to her daughter's birthday party will be looking at you to see if you stole her pocketbook. Y'all got to understand white folks. Stop looking at them through the lens of being nice and sweet. You got to understand something. The ends justify the means. White folks are master manipulators. They can be whatever you want them to be until they need to be what they ought to be. I'm going to say it again. They can be whoever you want them to be until they need to be what they ought to be. Um, the Hello? Yes, ma'am. Oh, yes. The other question I had is also about the so-called conscious community and uh, its handling or treatment of black women. Uh, I, I get the feeling sometimes that any time that uh, a black female is to be quieted, uh, she's automatically stopped with the label of feminist or, uh, as you stated earlier, a, a masculinized black woman. And uh, I was wondering how uh, your overall sentiments are about that. Oh, what's our question? Okay. A black woman with an opinion, which she should have because she is a member of the community and a human being, and we all have opinions, that does not make her a feminist, and that does not make her a masculinized female. A masculinized female is a black woman who wants to challenge black men's manhood. They want to strip you verbally or practically of your manhood. They want to belittle you and psychologically castrate you and compete with you as much as possible. They want to prove that they are superior to men. That's the masculinized woman. And then the feminist is the black woman who may or may not be masculinized, but she sees the black man as the primary problem from which all of her issues flow from. She don't see white supremacy as the problem. She don't deal with racism 
she deals with sexism. So she never sees who's pulling the strings behind the curtain. She just reduces everything to dysfunctional, lazy, immature, and underdeveloped black males. That's the feminine consciousness, and that's the masculinized woman. For me, and I can only speak for me, okay, when I say feminine, I'm talking feminist. The black woman who thinks that sexism is her issue, not white supremacy. The black man don't have no power. The black man has no systematic power to systematically oppress black women. Black women earn more than us. Black women got more education than us. Black women are in much more managerial positions than black men. How in the hell can we systematically discriminate against women where we don't even own any institutions? How can Dr. Umar systematically discriminate against black women? I don't own an institution. Now, once I have my school, you can accuse me of practicing sexism if you see that I systematically discriminated against black women in managerial positions. Once I have an institution, black men don't own It's nonsense. Okay? The issue is racism, not sexism. Now, as far as a black woman having an opinion, I don't think they should be put in a place because there is no place. In African community, African society, African spirituality, African culture, the black man and the black woman are equals. You, queen, are my equal. I am not better than you. You are not better than me. I am not more important than you. You are not more important than me. We will lead together. We will walk side by side. You don't have to be behind me, and I don't have to be behind you. That's African. That's African. So I don't have a problem with a black woman having an opinion. I will say, based on my experience, that I tend to evoke those feminist energies that are out there and those masculinized black women that are out there because of who I am within the conscious community as the most requested scholar, I think a lot of them have characterized me or symbolized me as that black, that educated middle-class, so-called middle-class black male that used them or manipulated them or didn't marry them or abused their mother. I think for me, I, the energies that have caused black women a lot of pain in their life has been transposed onto me. And I think a lot of black women see me as the uh, punching bag for all the black men who have caused them hell in the past because of who I am and what I represent, which is a shame because most of the work that I do, I do it with women. When I'm helping parents, who's raising our kids? The women. So my work is 75% with women, so it's amazing. However, I would say that 99% of African women love and support Dr. Umar. I only have a small percentage of haters out there, male and female. But my haters are so adamant and so consistent that they can make themselves look bigger than what they are. But getting back to your question, I do not have a problem with a strong woman. I love a strong, intelligent black woman because that balances me out. See, we got to understand that now. We got to understand that male-female energy that God put into creation. I'm out of balance without you balancing me. As strong as I come, the sister got to come and say, okay, let me balance it with the feminine. As strong as you come, I got to come and say, all right, babe, I see the feminine piece, but we got to get a little masculinity in this because I don't see no defense in what you got going on. I don't see enough structure. I don't see, you know, you're going to come and say, hold on, babe, I don't see enough compassion. I don't see enough uh, 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 justice in the way you got that laid out. We complement each other, and we are nothing without the opposite. We are nothing without the opposite. You know, but I will say 
as a brother in the conscious community, I think it does get difficult for those of us who are not married. Uh, and everybody knows the situation I went through uh, almost a, a year ago. It's been over a year now. The situation I went through, it, it's tough. It's real tough to be in these positions of quote-unquote power within the community because when you date a woman, and if that situation with that female doesn't work out to her favor, if you decide that she's not the one for you, or if she does something to you lose your confidence and trust in her and you decide to move on, the black woman benefits from this unfair uh, assignment of blame that we have in the black community, not just the conscious community, but the black community in general. We operate on a woman is never wrong system. Oh, yes. Our justice system does not have the woman ever being wrong in the relationship dynamic. This is why a lot of men don't get to see their children for this very reason, because the woman is never wrong. So you got to be careful when you're in a position like me, because if it don't work out, if she don't get what she wanted, if she wanted a relationship and she didn't get that, and her sole purpose for getting to know you was to try to earn this relationship, she can destroy you. As the sister tried to do to me, I'm going to turn this into you manipulating me, you used me, or you co- all this psychological uh, 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 stuff. They will throw that on you. So it gets very difficult to date because if it don't work, that woman can play victim and do a good job of doing it. Women do it with the kids all the time. I talk to black men all the time who can't see their kids. And they're like, God, this is crazy. I'm paying child support. Can't see my kids, and there's nobody I can go to to try to intercede on my behalf. The pastors are not going to do it because nobody wants to be at odds with the black woman. The community-based leaders ain't going to do it. Nobody wants to be at odds with the black woman. The average black man and woman are not interested in arguing on behalf of brothers' rights because nobody wants to be castigated by the feminine energy. And because of that, a lot of brothers are stepping away from the plate and saying, you know what, I'm not even messing with y'all. You know how many young brothers I'm meeting now who are like, hey, I'm not even getting married. What you mean you ain't getting married? Marriage is half a culture. Doc, I'm not going to do it. I saw what you went through with her. I see all this other stuff out here, all the men I know in my life. I'm not getting married. The, 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 the risks outweigh the rewards, and I don't agree with them. I don't think there's a greater reward than a black woman. I don't agree with them. You understand? But I see where they're coming from. And you know who can make this right? You know who has to balance this out? The black woman. Oh, yes. Y'all can bring harmony to this. Black women have to step up and say, okay, sisters, okay now. This is what we ain't going to do. We ain't going to blame men and try to destroy them when a relationship don't work out. You was a grown woman. You made a decision to get into the relationship. It didn't work. Move on with your damn life. We're not going to let you tear a brother down because it didn't work with you. That's not happening. We're not going for that. You will be thrown out of the sisterhood before we play that game. Guess what else we ain't going to do, sisters? You're not going to keep the kids away from these men. Oh, no, you're not. He's paying his child support. He's going to see his baby. It ain't that type of game. Oh, we're going to regulate this. Oh, you, sister, we see you trying to get with that married woman's husband. We don't play them games, babe. We, we don't do them games. Ain't no affairs. We don't play them games. If we catch you with another woman's husband, we airing your ass out. That's how the sisterhood's supposed to run. If brothers start seeing sisters, check sisters, we be like, oh, shit, yo. Look at this. They checked her. They called her up and said he better see his kids or nobody in this community, no black woman speaking to your ass again. That man will start seeing his kids. And then brothers will really start respecting black women like that. We appreciate y'all. 
Thanks for helping me out. Even if I can't see my kids, thank you for letting her know she was wrong. Thank you. Sisters could bring the, the we got the masculine is already there. The brothers is expressing they hurt and they pain and they want to go to war. Now the sisters got to balance that out and say, hey, brother, you ain't putting your hands on no sisters. You ain't threatening no sisters. It ain't going down like that. But this is what we're going to do because what's going on ain't right. You got a right to see your children. We going to go talk to her. Imagine if black women created some sort of a referral program in the hood where if a brother couldn't see his kids, they can call you. Imagine this. And a sister from the community will act in uh, the, the position of a social worker or life skills coach, mediate, and she will call that Excuse me, sister, I'm calling you on behalf of a brother, uh, 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 brother Hotep. And, you know, he said y'all got a two-year-old baby together, and you're not letting him see his child. Well, I don't know who you is, and I don't want to talk to you, but let me tell you who I am. And if you're not comfortable with me, I have an elder. I have a sister elder uh, who would like to talk to you. We're going to come on by the house. Oh, well, I don't want to. Okay, well, we want to put a letter under your door. You might want to read that letter because if you don't meet with us about this child, because then about you or him is about the child, then you're going to be ostracized. Nobody in this community is going to talk to you. So think about what you're doing. Please think about what you're doing. Trust me, it'll get through. Don't know sisters want to be aired out by the sisterhood. Think about it. If it's one thing black women don't like, I'm going to tell you this right now. I'm going to tell you this right now. I know this. I've seen it. If it's one thing the black woman is afraid of, if it's one thing the black man, it go both ways. If it's one thing the black man or the black woman is afraid of, it's of being ostracized by their brotherhood or their sisterhood. There is no black woman who wants to be frowned upon by the entire body politic of black women, and there's no black man who wants to be frowned upon. So we need to get together and put something like that in place. I think that would be powerful. I think that would be powerful to have our own internal family reconciliation program. Pow! That's what we need. To the female caller, thank you for your question. I just want to make sure we get in our last few callers before uh, the program wraps up. The caller at 4710-4710. Did you have a question for Dr. Umar? Yes. Hi, Gus. Hi, Dr. Umar. I have, going? I have a question. Um, I have a son. He's six years old. Um, he does well in school and everything. I stayed home with him for a while and homeschooled him before he started school. Now he's in kindergarten. He's in gifted. He's doing well. But um, I'm a single parent, and his his dad is in the picture as well. He spends like half and half with both of us. But I want to know, how can I instill a, a sense of responsibility in him to, to the black community? Um, oh, it is. Because... He's six, but I don't want him to use his education to benefit white institutions. I want him to use it to benefit black people and solving black problems. How can I instill that in him? Good question. First, I would say you teach responsibility by demonstrating accountability, making that young man accountable for his homework, for chores around the house for respecting you. Accountability breeds responsibility. You must be held accountable to become responsible. That's how you're going to do that. As far as him not using his talents for white supremacy, that's going to come from you constantly reinforcing the principle of self-reliance and self-determination. You're going to constantly drill into his mind that he's going to work for himself. You will be your own boss. You will be the master of your own ship, the captain of your own fate. Right now, you should be doing two main things for a baby that age. Seven and younger, we should be drowning them, 
figuratively speaking, overdosing them with positive African imagery. That's all he should see. Black dolls, black books, black film, nothing but his nothing but himself. To counterbalance the Eurocentricity that's gonna dominate his world outside your house. Your house should be a castle of blackness. You must condition that boy's unconscious to understand that blackness is the norm in Europeanism is the abnorm. This is important because most black parents indoctrinate their children subconscious with Eurocentric imagery, which makes him an alien to himself. He's an alien to himself because my parents have indoctrinated my mind with so much European information that being white is the norm. So if I'm black, then I'm automatically abnormal. You have to indoctrinate his subconsciousness so his frame of reference is himself, not the white boy. Let okay, wait. I just want to say one other thing, Lisa. Uh, sure. He okay. Now my son, um, he's biracial. He's black, right. but he's half white. But I that did that before nothing. I actually knew about. Uh, I you know, I was ignorant about everything at that time. I understand. So that I just wanted to nothing. say that. Okay. No, that's okay. That changes nothing. Okay. okay. And why does that change nothing? Because there's no such thing as a biracial child. Figuratively yes, speaking, right. you know, the one parent of white one. But figuratively speaking, it is. Okay, socially, there it is, because we've created this biracial label. Genetically, there's no such thing as biracial. When you take a half a cup of vanilla milk and a half of regular milk and a half a cup of chocolate milk and you spill them together, do you get half chocolate and half white milk? No, you get chocolate milk. The dominant yeah. gene always overtakes the recessive. So when that black woman has a baby with that white man or that white woman has a baby with that black man, that child is 99.99% black. And if you get any book and do any research on genetic crossover, you will see that. Genetic crossover, the dominant gene takes it over. That's why mm-hmm. so many biracial children can still obviously look black, even if they're light-skinned, even if they have thin hair. You can say, that's a black man. You can look at Obama oh, and tell yeah. Obama black. You see? Mm-hmm. So I'm saying that don't raise him differently than you would any other black child. You still have to talk to him about the fact that he has a parent who's white. That's all right. Your dad's white. You're not going to reject your dad. You're still going to love your father. That's your father. You're still going to get to know your relatives. You have a white father, but you are a black man because black is dominant. Make sure he understands that. Now, in my experience with biracial, so-called biracial Africans, the father is normally more realistic than the mother. In other words, usually the white man will tell his black child you black most of the time. Some of them in denial, mm-hmm. too. It's more of yes, a white mother. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Right. Mm-hmm. See, the father's more realistic. When the mother is white, she wants to raise the kid like the kid is white. I mean, and really mess them kids up, too, because what happens is white supremacy don't like people passing as white. Remember, white supremacy is a privilege. It's a privilege. It is mm-hmm. a gated community. The white race is a gated community. So if you want to, if you want to get in here, you've got to have all the... Uh, uh, requirements to wear this. And what happens is when that white woman raised that black kid as white, you know what happens? One day they're in fifth grade, and they get called the N-word by a white kid, and it crushes their whole reality. And now the mom got to detox all that propaganda and say, you know what, you really are black. So make sure he understands that he is, and you raise him the same way, and make sure he grows up around some black children. I don't care if it's just a if it's just one or two black playmates, make sure he gets that. Because if he don't get that, if he socialized around all white folks,
that's going to be his consciousness and his psyche. And you don't want him to be alien to his own people. You don't want him to be alien to his own people. So make sure he gets that in. But he'll be fine. He'll be fine. And when he's old enough, you know, or not so old enough, once my school is open, he can come there. And I'm going to make sure he understands that. And for any biracial boys going to my black boy college tour this summer or girls, they're going to understand that too. Because I've seen the pain and the pressure that comes from being, quote, unquote, biracial. I've seen it. And I, I, have a, I have a special place in my heart for biracial Africans because they have to navigate that world, and it's not a fair world. And one of the ways we help them navigate it is by clarifying their identity. Help them clarify their identity. You're not multiracial. You're not biracial. You're not quiet racial, son. Those are labels that the government made up to confuse black people. You are African. Yes, you're light-skinned. Yes, you got fine hair, but you are African. In fact, mm-hmm. when you have your child, your child might come out looking blue, black, purple, like your great-great-grandmother. You African. Accept that. <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. Thank you for the response. Not a problem. Thank you. And the other thing, because I mentioned baptizing him in African imagery, the reading. At that age, expose him to all the books in the world. Read to him. Let him read to you. Make reading a fun part of his life and make reading an integral part of family culture. If there's one criticism I have for black families in general, rich or poor, and I hope everybody's listening, if there's one criticism I have of our families is that we have not incorporated literacy into our family culture. We don't read as a family together. I think every family every night should have an hour where they either read silently and then you, uh, you, you switch that in or you rotate with reading to the family. Tonight, daddy's going to read an article. Tomorrow, mom's going to read an article. The next day, son is going to read an article. The next day, daughter's going to read an article, and we're going to talk a lot. We're going to have our own family study group. Please incorporate literacy into the family culture. Please. Okay. Oh, one other question. Do you think, okay, um, as far as I heard some other callers ask about marijuana, do you think that it's okay for a responsible adult to smoke marijuana, someone who's, you know, just to yes, relax. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I see nothing wrong with an adult smoking marijuana to relax, but I would just ask that that adult make sure that marijuana was not sprayed by the CIA, was not dipped in, marijuana, in uh, angel dust PCP or wet or cocaine or heroin, because what happens is a lot of these drug dealers that are dipping the marijuana sticks and selling them, they're not only using wet PCP, angel dust, and heroin. They're also using rat poison. They're using bombing in fluid. They're using industrial agents. So I would just say safeguard your product and safeguard the source of your stash. And don't be in denial about the fact that you may be developing a chemical addiction to the drug that may require you to seek some professional help. But outside of that, I don't see anything wrong with the occasional usage of marijuana to calm your nerves down. Okay. Good, good to hear from uh, Brittany, uh, our caller in Michigan. Did you have a question for Dr. Umar? Uh, uh, good evening, Gus, Dr. Umar, to all the callers and listeners. Wow. I am, first of all, I just want to say I am just, um, I have so many notes, number one. And thank you for just, you know, taking all the callers. I, I, I kind of chimed in late, but 
Thank you. So I do have a few questions, just three. I'll try to make them quick. The first question is, um, what is your position on the effects of protesting just in general? Say that one more time. The what? What is what is your position on the effects of protesting? The effects of protesting. I think protesting still has a place in our struggle. I do. I think protesting is more has a greater effect on the community on the community than it does on the power structure. Remember, the power structure only respects power. So it's not that where I think it has its benefit, but it's on the consciousness raising aspect of our struggle. We re- we got to understand that white supremacy only respects money, power, and numbers. Money, power, and numbers. Protesting is aimed at raising the consciousness of black people so we have enough numbers to be able to influence the direction that the power uh, system decides to take. So, for example, when people say we're going to march, I support marching. Why would you support marching as a revolutionary Pan-Africanist? Because when you walk through the street about something positive, you wake other people up. When you walk through the street marching for something positive, other people want to get involved. When you walk through the street marching about something positive, other people see that they also have an obligation to get involved and change things. I love the protest in the march because it reminds black people that there's people who still care about the way we're treated, that all of us have not given up. Some of us are still concerned. And this, this march might not be much, but at least we're saying that we still care. And I think that goes a long way psychologically towards raising the consciousness. So I would never be against marching. I will never be against protesting. I will only be against using the march and the protest as the primary means for change. Now, if it is the primary means for change as opposed to being a propaganda instrument, then I'm going to have a problem with it because that is not going to change the power system's direction. You change that with power. But the marching is how you recruit. The marching is how you get the community involved. The marching is how you get the word out and raise the consciousness. Great. Okay. My next question is, um, I'm so glad you talked about reading and, um, you know, I just appreciate Dr. Wells and every time she came on the program was, you know, just stressing how reading is uh, more important than watching TV. So my question to you is, can you recommend three books um, that non-white people can read to aid in black self-respect? Okay. A couple things. Respect and self-respect is often taught from the parent to the child. We have to teach our children to be self-respecting, and the best way to do that is to be self-respecting ourselves. However, I do believe that that can be supported by reading material. I think that understanding of self is very critical to self-respect, and I think understanding of the enemy is very critical to self-respect, so you're not overly critical of yourself based on what's done to you because you understand racism and white supremacy. I don't think we have a definitive text yet on black self-respect, but I would say that many of our psychologists, I think Wade Nobles is an author that everyone needs to read. Uh, I think Dr. Naeem Akbar is also an author that everyone needs to read, and I think Dr. Amos Wilson is another author that everyone needs to read. Now, Bobby Wright, he also needs to be read. He published a couple of books, but Wade Nobles, Naeem Akbar, and Dr. Amos Wilson are probably our three most published conscious black psychologists. And so getting familiar with their work, they do a lot. They have a lot to do on a self-esteem, a lot to do with self-esteem and self-respect. Dr. Amos Wilson's book, uh, 
the uh, developmental psychology of the black child, awakening the natural genius of the black child. Those are two absolute must-reads for black parents, along with my uh, psychoacademic holocaust, the special education and ADHD, ADHD war. And I thank you for that, sister, because you gave me an idea. I'm working on my second edition of the book, and or part two of the book, and I'm going to include a chapter on self-respect myself. That is something I had not thought about including, so I'm going to address that myself in my book. So that'll be in addition to the literature as well. Awesome. Um, and my last question is, um, I have unfortunately not had an opportunity to, to catch you when you were in Detroit. So when will you be back in Detroit? I know that you've been at, not, I think it's called Nandi's Cafe. And the one time I did try to attend, it was packed, jam-packed and I couldn't get in. So I just want to know, like, um, when you'll be coming to Detroit again. Uh, yes, ma'am. I was in Detroit for Kwanzaa. Uh, I believe it was Kwanzaa. Yes, I'm almost certain it was Kwanzaa. So that is December. So we're talking January, February, March, April. May is coming up. I'm about due for a return. I didn't realize it. January, February, March, April, May. Wow. I'll be due for a return this summer to Detroit. So I would say just stay in contact with me. If you're on social network, please uh, subscribe to one of my pages. So that way you can always see it. And I put all the flyers multiple times on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So if you're on one of those, you should definitely be able to um, get get the information. And you can always text me occasionally as well. But, yes, I'm definitely due for a return to Detroit. I didn't even realize it's been almost six months. So that will be coming up soon. Well, thank you for, um, you know, taking all the callers. Thanks, Gus, for uh, taking my call. And I just appreciate um, your commitment to, um, you know, just serving and replacing white supremacy with justice. And thanks again to you both, uh, you and Gus. Thank you, Queen. For sure. Last caller, last caller, 4073-4073. Did you have a question for Dr. Umar? Yeah. Um, I was calling about, um, do you think that, I'm having a hard time hearing you. Um, if you could uh, speak up, or uh, I'm just I'm having a real difficult time hearing you. I don't know if Dr. Umar can hear you, but I'm I'm having a real tough time hearing you, sir. Well, can you ask your question again? Um. Yeah, I was asking. Do you think that you are the leader? For black people, or just uh, you wouldn't mind being a messenger for black people if if there were another leader for black people. Um, good question. That's something that I struggle with within myself. Um, sometimes I think I am the leader. Other times I think I'm not. I definitely wouldn't mind being a messenger or a follower or an assistant. I have no problem with the secondary role. I do not have to be out front. And because I'm a humble enough guy to not have to be out front, sometimes I think I am the leader because I constantly pushed out front and I was kind of put out there. Uh, the reasons why I would second guess whether I am or not is um, based on the fact that one of my biggest challenges so far, and I don't mind sharing this with you guys, this is a little bit of self-disclosure, but one of my biggest challenges has been developing that team 
of Africans around me who I can absolutely trust with the work and with my life so I can get things accomplished. Um, I feel that I could have gotten a lot more accomplished than I have in these past 15, 16 years of lecturing, even if I just look at the past five or six years since I've been atop the conscious community. I feel I could have gotten a lot more done if I had the right team. But it's always a problem because through the years, and you guys don't see this, this is the behind-the-scenes type of stuff, I'm constantly having to switch out people and switch in new people because the people who may be there, you know, are either opportunistic or they grow lazy or they simply wanted to use me to get a footstool for themselves in the conscious community or benefit from your shine. Social network has made black people addiction junkies, attention junkies. Everybody wants attention. Everyone is addicted to attention, and they do everything they do to get attention. And that becomes a problem because I do get a lot of, a lot of attention by virtue of the work I do, but I need people to stay focused on the job. Don't let the attention make or break you or throw you off. I need your help. But that's one of the toughest things. In fact, I would consider that a bigger problem than the, than the distractors and the haters because the haters, it ain't that many of them. I mean, they do what they do. But I can live with that kind of stuff because it's all lies and it can be proven to be lies. You know, they say you ain't got a doctorate. You can prove that. Uh, they say you're not a school psychologist. You can prove that. You know, a lot of that stuff can be proven so it's not an issue. But when you don't have a team that you can trust and rely on, then you are walking around with more burden than you should have, and your mental capacity is constantly being exhausted on getting things done when you should be able to pass them off and use your greater consciousness to direct the ship. You know, it's like, how are you going to drive the car and repair the car? How are you going to drive the car and clean the car while you drive it? You can't do all those things at once. And so I'm constantly having to drive and maintain the vehicle while I'm driving it. And it just gets very, very exhausting because you ain't got a lot of people who you can just say, hey, I need to give you this. And I need to know you're going to handle this, and I need to know, and I need to know you're going to handle this without uh, ego, without causing problems with other people, uh, without trying to turn this into a attention show for yourself. Just do the work, and that gets tough. And I do got people I can trust around me. Don't get me wrong, I do have people, but it's not enough. It's not enough. I need me a nice twelve, and right now I'm operating with about five, and I need more than that. And that's the toughest part of my job because I constantly get people who say, I want to help, I want to help, I want to help. But then you're reluctant because it's like I got to go through this all over again. It's like a new relationship. You got to meet somebody. You got to test them out. And then it's like, okay, you know, if they can do the job, sometimes that's a curse. You know why? Because some of your best workers aren't loyal to you. And some of the people who are loyal to you aren't your best workers. It's like, this is crazy because I can trust him with, my, with, with, with information and secrets, but I can't trust him to do the job. I can trust her, but I can't trust her to show up on time, you see. Or, you know, this person I don't trust, but they can do the job good as hell, but I know that they're an opportunist. So the, it, 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 it's a challenge. That, I would say, has to be, has to be the biggest obstacle in my everyday work with what I'm trying to get done. Because you guys know i got multiple plans, multiple plans, multiple projects, and I should just be able to give a project apiece to different people, and I can't. There's always something going on 
Somebody ain't doing what they're supposed to do. People getting lazy, and it just drains the hell out of me. That's why I took these two months off. I didn't take this break because I needed a break from speaking. I love speaking to our people. I love motivating and making them laugh and traveling from city to city. I wasn't tired because of that. I didn't take two months off. I took two months off because I grew exhausted of having to drive the car and maintain it. It, 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 it wore me out. I said, I've got to take a break. This is getting too much. I've got to take a break before I have a nervous breakdown, not from the speaking, but all the stuff y'all don't see when I'm not on stage. Wow. That is uh, all of the folks who dialed in with questions. Um, just that alone, standing in to uh, answer all the questions that folks had, uh, definitely uh, just have super appreciation and gratitude for being so generous with your time and energy uh, this evening, Dr. Umar. Um, before we let you go and, and rest up, I know you said tomorrow morning you'll be on uh, bright and early on your job again, offering assistance to black parents. Just anything that you uh, want to conclude with before we wrap the program up. And if you could give the information where parents can tune in tomorrow to hear you, if they have any questions that they want to ask, solicit any advice from you. Uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Brother Gus, the number for tomorrow's black parent teleconference on education and mental health, where you can get any questions answered about your child please grab a pen or take out your cell phone notepad or pencil and write this down or tell somebody else to write this down. We do this each and every Tuesday. We do this each and every Tuesday, 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and I do stay on longer, you know, when we have a lot of calls. Uh, tomorrow we probably will end at 8 o'clock because I have to do a psychological evaluation of a young man at 10 o'clock. The number is 857-232-232. 0158-857-232-0158. The access code. After you dial in, just like you did on tonight's call with Brother Gus, you got to put in your access code. And that is 870-864-POUND. Again, 870-864-POUND. Once again, the number, 857 857- Two three two zero one five eight, and the access code is eight seven zero eight six four pound. If you need any flyers to any upcoming events, you can email me, Doctor Umar Johnson at Yahoo, D R U M A R Johnson at Yahoo, or you can text my cell phone, area code two one five nine eight nine nine eight five eight. Two one five nine eight nine nine eight five eight. That's my cell. You can text me for any flyer. If you have any quick questions, remember you can buy your tickets for Philadelphia, South Carolina, Savannah, Oakland, Brooklyn, Baltimore, and the college tour for boys and girls at princeofpanafricanism.eventbrite.com. P-R-I-N-C-O-F-P-A-N-A-F-R. I-K-A-N-I-S-M. One word, we spell Africa with a K. Prince of Pan-Africanism dot eventbrite.com. Spectacular. Really appreciate all the information. Uh, just uh, 
I don't want to say I felt bad, but I definitely uh, I didn't know uh, it was going to be so much rich, rich information around the cannabis issue. But I mean, that is super important. That's why I say I definitely do not feel bad, but uh, I definitely uh, hope people think about what was said, do some research. I hope people took some good notes, uh, really, because I was really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on that, uh, getting your perspective. I felt you'd have some really researched and nuanced uh, insight to give us on that. Uh, just the number again, and folks, black parents in particular, if you want to call to participate in the teleconference tomorrow morning, 857-232-0158, and the access code 870 six four pound uh, you can dial it tomorrow morning two hours great information for parents things you can do to safeguard protect advocate for your black children uh, just on behalf of, of all the folks who tuned in to hear you live tonight and people that will hear this in the archives, really, really appreciate uh, you being so generous with your time, hanging out to speak with us this evening, answering all the calls. Always a pleasure to hear from you, to learn from you, and just wish you continued success and, and hope that you have uh, an abundance uh, of energy so you can continue to go out and do this work uh, to fight for black people and particularly in, in all that you are trying to do to aid and help black children. Uh, just wish you the best. And uh, we will definitely be looking forward to the next time we can have you on the broadcast. And I know folks will be looking out for you on uh, all the upcoming venues and folks down in Alabama. Hopefully we'll have an opportunity. You said it was sold out, but hopefully people have opportunity to go check you and uh, David Banner out your uh, upcoming event in Alabama. Uh, just again, thanks so much. And uh, please enjoy the rest of your Monday evening. Be safe, be strong and keep up the great work. Dr. Umar. Thank you, Brother Gus, and I'll see you on the battlefield. Absolutely, absolutely. Take good care, sir. All right, my brother. Peace and love. Good evening, good evening. Dr. Umar Abdullah Johnson, 10th time on the context of white supremacy, hung out, did the full four hours to take care of all the listeners' questions and what have you. I hope you all appreciate uh, him being so generous with his time with us this evening. Uh, we'll be back 24 hours. If there are black parents and you have additional questions you want to get in, we should be here tomorrow, 24 hours. Uh, we'll have Dr. Mazama. She's a scholar right in Dr. Umar's backyard, right in Pennsylvania. She should be here uh, tomorrow evening. She also does a lot of work just offering advice, suggestions on things that black parents can do. Uh, to make sure that you uh, maximize your child's academic development. She'll be here tomorrow evening, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. She was requested by one of our uh, listeners, investors, black parents, uh, who thought she'd have some great insight to share. So just tune in. More insight on this subject matter tomorrow evening. If you have questions, uh, suggestions, gripes, feel free to drop an email, untiljustice at gmail.com, untiljustice at gmail.com. And I will just quickly i don't think any more needs to be said given what dr umar shared with us this evening sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism underline it bold face print with that creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other victims of racism we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person, it has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cows signing out. Thanks all for tuning in and thanks again to Dr. Umar. We'll be back. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my condition. Mm hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.